Welcome to the Arms Race, the podcast where we're trying to determine which action star has the highest body count in movie history. Currently, we are watching each and every Sylvester Stallone movie. I'm Mike Olson. And I'm Kevin Keene, and today we're discussing Nighthawks, released by Universal Pictures on April 10th, 1981, starring Sylvester Stallone, Billy D. Williams, Lindsay Wagner, Persis Kambada, Nigel Davenport, Hilary Thompson, and Rudker Hauer as Wolfgar. Screenplay by David Schaber. Based on a story by David David Shaber and Paul Silbert, directed by Bruce Malmuth. Okay, so Nighthawks. I knew absolutely nothing about this movie. It was a random pick. Okay. I knew that it was a cop movie and that Billy Dee Williams and Rutger Hauer were also in it. That's all I knew. Okay, you knew more than me. Um... This was my pick. So it you was, didn't even know this was a, a cop movie. You just picked it. No. Just, here, I'm just going to pick this one. I decided I was going from the new Brando category of what the categories that were left because I didn't want to do an animated movie after the last one. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know any of these. I'm just going with this. I had no idea what it was about. Okay. So what did you think? Coming in totally cold, which uh, is a rare case, I think, in our podcast. Yes. Uh, it certainly was totally cold. Not a very good movie, if you ask me. Yeah. I'm really torn about this movie. Because I think there are a couple of things that I think are very good, and the rest is very bad. There's nothing middle of the road, in my opinion, about this movie. Although in the end, I kind of I'm coming down in the middle. I think in in general. Okay. But like you know, I think the acting in, in general in this movie is very good. I think I would agree with you there. I think the scene to scene writing, like the dialogue, the way it's written, I, I enjoyed. But the story is nonsense. Like we'll have to you know when we get into the plot summary, we'll we'll talk about it. But it's like. And Nothing hangs together. I think it's badly directed. I thought this musical score was one of the worst I'd heard. It's just like everything is one extreme or the other. It's like this thing, this particular aspect is is great, and this other aspect is really bad. In the end, I just I'm very conflicted because there's a, there are things that I liked about this movie, but I think I agree with you that it's not a good movie. It's just there are individual components, components yeah. that work. But and you highlighted two of them right off the bat that were noteworthy to me. Unfortunately, on the negative side. I almost never notice the score in a movie. It's really noticeable. It's right up front in the credits. It is terrible. It's really bad. It really is. And then the other thing that I noticed, uh, maybe three, because on the positive side, let me me then move to a positive. Okay. I do think the performances, and for this to be in the new Brando uh, category, it's probably appropriate. I think Stallone is giving a good performance. I I think Rutger Hauer is giving a good performance. Totally agree. There's just not a lot of good material on there, but I think they're they're giving it their all and making an okay script far more watchable with their performances. I suspect, and from the little bit of reading I was doing, it seemed like it was a trouble production and it was cut way down in the editing room. I think probably this was a good script that just got butchered in post production, and you know, there's a number of questions that probably can't be answered in my questions yeah. for this episode because of I think you're right about that fact. It feels like there are whole plot lines missing that just were on the cutting room floor. Yeah, you know, Lindsay Wagner's character is in two scenes, and <laughs> that's it. It's like, you think she's there at the end, and then she's not. She's, so I was like, going to say, actually, Stallone posing as her <laughs> is in the movie almost as much as she is. That's absolutely true. Uh, you know, stuff like that where it's like, oh, this character, I, I fully expected, I don't want to jump ahead, but I fully expected her character to play a very particular role. You know, I can't help sometimes to look ahead and be yeah, like, okay, I, jump and I, predict. Think, yeah. I think I know where this movie's going, and I thought I knew. And then her character is just has nothing to do. I mean, she literally has no, nothing <laughs> to do. She's like Seinfeld for her. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And here's the thing about this movie, you know, and I feel bad this season has been just a lot of us being negative. Not Rocky but, Three. No, not Rocky Three. Well, I was a little negative, but I just 
even even Rocky three. I am down on Rocky three compared to all of the Rocky movies, even though I still like it a lot. Yeah. So even even there, I think there was a certain amount of negativity, at least on my part. I feel bad because I'm waiting for another uh, specialist. I, what, the thing I like about doing this podcast is yep. setting out to do every you know every movie of a group. In this case, Sylvester Stallone movies. And it's like there's a lot of movies we've never seen. And I'm looking forward to discovering. Yeah. I loved the specialist, and I love the fact that this podcast caused me to discover yeah. it. And you know, I genuinely love that movie. Like it's, <laughs> it's. I can actually tell. From it's, you. I really, really love the specialist. You know, and even I, going, I, go, just not to yeah, cut you off, go but ahead. going back, even Arnold. I mean, I had seen Jingle All the Way, sure, but I like, yeah. all, because of this podcast. I have a. To- I mean, I I want to watch it like every holiday season now. I mean, it's like. I'm excited for it. And the same thing, that's not necessarily in the discovered. That was kind of a newly discovered, but like, I, um, of course, now I'm going to forget the name. Uh, I am starting to get old. Sally Field. Um, oh, yeah. And Joe, yeah. Joe Spinell. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay Hungry. Yes. Stay Hungry is a movie without doing this podcast, I wouldn't have seen. Now, do you know, is it something that I absolutely love the way you love The Specialist? No, but I did enjoy it. And it was like a discovery. And it was like, wow, I'm, I'm glad we did this. Yeah, and I, I know we you need more of those <laughs> in this filmography. I know you don't agree with me, but the sixth day is a little bit like that for me. I know, okay. you, I know you disagree. Yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. But I had Nighthawks kind of. Starred. I had an asterisk, yes, exactly next to it because it was like I know people like this movie. There's potential here, and yeah, I was like, this might be one of those that's yeah. discoverable, and I was looking forward to doing it because I was like, oh, this might be one that ends up. I love. You know, one of the things I really like about this movie is the fact that it's coming from like more of a tradition of '70s yeah. cop movies. Uh, it's worth pointing out from the research I saw that this screenplay began as French Connection 3. Okay. That's It was written to be French Connection 3. Gene Hackman's like, no, thank you. And then they rewrote it. <laughs> you know, they just changed the characters. But Stallone's character was supposed to be Popeye Doyle. Even though he looks exactly like Frank Serpico. He does look a lot like Frank Serpico. You're right. <laughs> it's not quite, uh, it's not, I mean, it's sort of an undercover, or no, is Serpico undercover? What did he do? What, what, I, it's been a well, long time since I watched Serpico. Serpico ultimately, you know, testified against corruption in the New York City yeah, Police Department. What was his beat? Yeah, I think he was, if I remember, it's been a while, but no, I think he's an undercover cop. Was he undercover? Okay, I was right yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah, whereas this is less undercover and more, it's decoy unit? Is I that what they say? I, I don't know what him and Billy D are up to. They, <laughs> they just seem to have their own beat. They do whatever they want. That's true. It's sort of like they're in the wire, and they just have their own unit, but it's a unit of two. But I did enjoy the opening scenes with the two of them doing cop stuff. I did, too. Uh, it just doesn't feel like it fits with no, the No, the, the, movie, the movie, movie takes a right turn when it becomes about terrorism, <laughs> and it's no longer a cop movie. Suddenly, it's this, like... It's trying to be like this game of chess, and no, it's I mean this this it's appropriate coming after assassins. It's just like two men and they're playing a dangerous game of chess. It's like, but it works even less here than in assassins. Big time. I, I think Big time. Uh, you know this like supposed conflict between Rutger Hauer, the terrorist, and you know Stallone it feels as, totally manufactured. I forget Stallone's character's name, but yeah, I mean it, it, there isn't much about the plot that makes a lot of sense. So no. I'm disappointed. I thought maybe this would be... And so just to finish kind of my thought, the, the third component that you already highlighted is that, you know, I, I am definitely a... Not, I'm not a cinephile that I love the look of movies. I mean, there are certain movies that I certainly like the look, but I, I watch a movie for the story. And mm-hmm. I screenwriters and screenwriting, that's where it, it begins and ends for me, and this is just not a good screenplay. And so that... It fails there. I think the performances lifted up a little bit, but ultimately... 
the screeching score just really <laughs> takes you out of the movie. It's literally screeching. Every, yes, I mean, it really is. That's not an exaggeration. The <laughs> opening credits, are just it's just like... It's, it's like... It's. It, 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 I was kind of. It's like, not even the cat on the synthesizer that you get in like the Terminator or whatever movie we had. I. It's, it's right. It's just piercing. Well, that <laughs> the difference between it's like, you know, in the Terminator soundtrack. Uh, to reiterate, I like parts of the Terminator soundtrack, but yeah. I did say some parts sound like cats uh, fighting on a keyboard. But even that's one person with a synthesizer. Yeah. This is an orchestra. Someone went to an orchestra and said, "Okay, you three, you know, you two trumpets and you two trombones. I just want you to blare as hard as you can." And you'd think this these professionally trained <laughs> musicians should be like, "You want to just do what?" Um, let's just get the conversation about the score out of the way because this is written by. I forget his first name. I have his notes somewhere, but the Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer, and they—I don't like their music as a band. So it's like it may, actually it when I read sense. that, it's like oh, this makes total sense. Yeah, they have one hit. Um, I forget the name of it, but it's it's. I probably wouldn't know. Not it a anyways, good, no, so. I think you would. It's my notes. I'll find it later. All right. So should we move on? Let's get started. Yeah, let's get into this. All right. What day is it? What year? All right. It is April 10th, 1981, when Nighthawks opened on a $5 million budget. Uh, it had just under $20 million in total gross with uh, just under 15 in domestic and an approximation that I could find of about $5 million in foreign. I'm sure Rutger Hauer being a, a big reason why there's a foreign box office kind of on uh, uh, a 1981 movie. Yeah, that, I that's guess, pretty notable. I guess that makes sense. I wonder if that's why they cast him. I don't know. That's that's interesting. I'm, this is his first English language movie, and yeah. it's, he's very good yeah. cons- considering he went right on to he moved uh, on to do Blade Runner after this. Yeah. I think based on this performance, he I got was, that. Right? I was going to say it's a pretty good follow up for him. That's for sure. Yeah, I enjoy him too. In Batman Begins, actually, I, even though it's not a huge role in that movie, I uh, I oh, certainly enjoy him. Right, I forgot he was in that. He's yeah. like the head CEO of Wayne or Wayne Enterprises, and he's yeah. uh, ultimately Morgan Freeman's Lucius Fox gets gets the best of him wow, by the I end. Completely forgot he was in that movie. Yeah. All right, so the number one movie in America was one that I know, I believe you know and love, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. It's, oh, you know what? I started, that's uh, not the number one movie in America. I forgot that this is 1981, so I got to get the preface. The getting weekly box office information is just about impossible. So what I had to do, like in similar older movies, I just went and got, what were the top 10 grossing movies for that year? So, okay, that makes sense. Though. Yeah, Raiders of the Last Ark. So that total total gross was $212 million. Its opening week was $8 million. So that, that movie had to be in theaters a long time to get up to 200 and some odd million dollars. Yeah, only $8 million. I mean, I guess yeah. Yeah, it was a new property at the time. It's yep. hard to imagine a world without Indiana Jones, but at one point, at one point it existed. It did exist. All right. So rounding out the rest of the top ten, number two on Golden Pond. I'm embarrassed. I don't even know what that is. Really? Yeah. That won all the Oscars that year. Gotcha. That's Henry Fonda and uh, um, who's the old, old lady who's in there with him? It's, it's all about old people. Oh, that's probably- It's about old people sitting around a pond. So okay. it won like nine Oscars. All right. Well, I, don't, I actually have never seen it. I don't know what it's about. That's my impression. Okay. <laughs> from from my, my brief impressions from afar, It's I just know it's about... Well, old people. Old people must have been buying a lot of movie tickets because it sold $120 million of tickets. It was a very highly regarded prestige piece. I think Jane Fonda's also in it. Oh, okay. Both Henry and Jane Fonda? I'm not sure. All right. So another keen favorite is in the top three. 
Superman 2 is in the top three. It, Richard Donner. It, well, half of it is directed by Richard yeah. Donner. I think, I think officially it was directed by Richard Lester. Gotcha. Okay. It's, it's, Richard Lester is credited as director. But All yes, right. Superman 2 is fun. Uh, $108 million for Superman 2. This is a surprising number. Arthur at number four at $95 million. Wow. I would never guess that it was that, that uh, successful. The thing is, you know, comedies, comedies back in the 80s, I mean, they could just be absolute blockbusters. Because number five, and I know you've said this hat doesn't hold up well. I have not seen it in at least a decade. I already know what you're going to say. Oh, please. Fill it's in. Stripes. Yes, it is. Stripes at 80, uh, roughly $85 million. Yeah. I, I, I watched it like three or four years ago and thought it didn't hold up. So maybe I will change my opinion if I watch it again. But at the time, I went like, ooh. Mm, gotcha. I don't know about this. Uh, another, you know, I actually would like to go back. Well, I have not seen this in a long time. Cannonball Run at $72 million. I would like to go back and see what Cannonball Run actually is, because I, I don't know if it is what I think it is. Oh, you've never seen it? I, I only no, watched, I've seen it, but I, I wonder if it's what I remember. I only saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah. I oh. didn't enjoy it. Okay. I like the Smoking the Bandit movies. Mm, Cannonball Run, and I wasn't a big fan. All right. It's just a bunch of set pieces, and like it's just shtick. It's fun to see Jackie Chan as like a young person, like very young. It's fun to see Roger Moore basically playing James Bond. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. And coming up soon will be a Bond movie in the top ten. Oh, 81's got to be uh, For Your Eyes Only, right? Uh, you are correct. It's a number eight. In between that and Cannonball Run is Chariots of Fire. Okay. I actually, I, for, for Your Eyes Only is one that I like, and I, I don't feel like I should because I don't think it's that good of a movie, but for some reason that's one that I like. Yeah, we've, said, we've discussed this before. I, I'm with you on that. It's him kicking the car off the cliff. Every time we talk about this movie, I have to bring it up because it's, it's one of my favorite James Bond moments in the entire series. Kicks a car off a cliff. It's the coolest thing any character has ever done in a movie. Touche. There's a man in the car, to be clear. Finishing the top ten, The Four Seasons. I do not know it. Yeah, I don't know that either. Uh, and then Time Bandits uh, at $42 million. I don't like Time Bandits. I, uh, I vaguely remember it. I've, I've seen it once, but I don't really remember much I, about it. I'm hot and cold on Terry Gilliam. That's, that's a cold one for uh, me. Ah, okay. I like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Huge fan of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, what else? Uh, eight, 12 Monkeys is good. Was he also, is Terry Gilliam, is he the Thin Red Line? No, that's no, Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick, yes, yes. Uh, all right, so on the TV front, JR in Dallas is the number one show in America. Oh, had uh, he been shot yet? I bet this is around the time when he was shot, and everyone wondered who shot him. It probably was. I don't know. I should have looked that up. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's fine. That's the only thing I know about that show. That's the only is thing. that I... people were wondering who shot JR. Yeah, and the, o- the only reason that he, I mean, I knew of it, but actually, the Who Shot Mr. Burns, being the Simpsons fan that I am, sure, kind of kept that alive, where I actually also care more about Who Shot Mr. Burns than Who Shot JR, of yeah, course. Yeah, 100%. Also, isn't Dallas the show? I think the other thing I know about it is it, it like, totally erased a season. Like, oh, that I didn't I, know. I think that's the show where like se- season five went by and like everyone hated it, and then season six started, and it was like, it was a dream. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> Something it's like outstanding. Maybe that's, that's the case. maybe that's a different show. So there's some show that had that did that. But I don't remember. Uh, number two is sixty minutes. Number three, the Jeffersons. Three's Company is the number four show in America. Uh, I don't know. You know Alice? I know. I think we've talked about this one. I do not know Alice. Yeah, we've talked about how I get that mixed up with like Rhoda and Mama's Family, and right. there's there's a lot of shows from the late seventies and early eighties about. Like, young comedians playing old ladies was, like, a thing for a while. For a while, yes. You know? Mama's Family was definitely, because uh, that was Carol Burnett. Yep, absolutely. That one I do know. Yeah. Uh, number six was a show I loved as a kid. Oh, wait, is Rhoda B. Arthur? That might be B. Arthur. 
So maybe he wasn't young. I no, think that's, I don't think Rhoda's B. Arthur. I think it might have been. I don't know. But it's not important. No, I think isn't Rhoda Mary Tyler Moore? I don't think so. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we, we can look it up, but who cares? we'd have to look it up. All right. Number six is a show I liked as a kid, mainly because I liked the really bad stunts that I didn't know were bad stunts as a kid. The Dukes of Hazard was the number six show oh, in America. Yeah, I love the Dukes of Hazard. I, I tried watching it recently. I'm sure it's terrible. It's all on Amazon Prime. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, the I'm entire gonna show. I'm going to watch an episode. Well, I watched the first episode, and that was kind of fun. And I went, like, I'm just going to pick a random episode in the middle. <laughs> And I picked a random episode in the middle where Bo and Luke were not around because they were in like contract disputes. And so they brought in like <laughs> Ken and Billy or something. It was just like were they Duke? Were they they Duke were brothers? Duke cousins? Oh, they're, they're, were like, they like Daisy's brothers or something? Something I don't know. They they tried to they're like oh Bo and Luke are off driving in a NASCAR or something. They they made up something. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, it was amazing to see. You just like, who are these two guys? And the show was just trying to carry on, just like, like nothing. Sort of like, no, you can just forget yeah. any of that happened. Tom Wopat needed his cash. <laughs> That's great. Uh, another show I don't recognize. Too close for comfort. You remember that one at all? I remember the title. I remember. I don't know what it is. Finishing out the top ten, the ABC Monday Night Movie. Mash is still hanging around at number nine. Uh, and then one day at a time, number ten. Is there any way to find out what the ABC Sunday Night Movie was like what they were showing because I'd be curious to know what gets the like was it Star Wars I bet like you'd think it would be a pretty big movie to Probably. get you know that higher rating see I've also wondered or is it just like every week they show a different movie I don't remember that, how that works I th- I think it's that they show a different movie every week and I, this is like the aggregate of all the yeah, ratings I okay. I thought that I also thought that it was like that that's how Columbo got showed that they it was like a but I think Columbo was on CBS no I'm pretty sure the Sunday Night Movie was a real movie okay. it was just like. But I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. This isn't a rating for a single episode. It no, was like, I think it's just yeah, all of kind of the average the of when those movies, uh, whatever movie they're showing. Yeah, because they used to show they, that continued on through like the late eighties. I remember yeah, they showed we, big we still, movies. Yeah, we still actually have it. Sometimes that it cracks the top ten. Actually, yeah, it's been in there. It makes sense because it was like before HBO and like yeah. cable, and yeah. obviously now with streaming, like that was an easy way to watch a movie on TV. Absolutely. All right, so in the uh, world of history, the S&P 500 is at 134.40. Got to know that. Uh, <laughs> You're getting it down to two decimals now? Did yeah, you always do that? I always did. I haven't always actually read it, though. <laughs> I noticed it this time. I was like, wait, you're getting even more granular with your <laughs> S&P 500. This is how important it is. You have to be as accurate as possible. Well, I got a lot in the business world, actually, in the month of April 1981. Oh, great. I'll get up for a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a shot across my bow. Jeez. <laughs> I apologize. Well, on April 1st, the Isuzu Motor Company begins selling cars in the United States and becomes the sixth Japanese manufacturer to sell in the U.S. Great. April Fool's. And it would lead to the great commercial character of Joe Isuzu, of course. That's the only thing I really remember about... That's that and the fact that the kind of the imports from all those Japanese gave us the movie Gung Ho are the only two things that I really would remember about the Isuzu Motor Company. I don't think I know anyone who ever owned an Isuzu... Like, I, now it's just only those, like, trucks and stuff, right? I don't even know if they're still made, frankly. Hon- I think honestly. they still make... Like, I, I see a Suzu trucks on the road, but okay. I, I don't think I ever see... Passenger cars. Yeah, or, I, or I, I don't remember ever having seen a, a Suzu on the road. Yeah. Uh, on April 3rd, the Osborne One, not, uh, not Ozzy Osborne, but the Osborne One personal computer is introduced in San Francisco four man- months uh, before the IBM PC. 
Wow, never heard of that. I hadn't. I knew that there was something that existed. I didn't know that it was the Osborne one until uh, looking this stuff up. Hmm. I like old. I, I'm kind of interested in like 80s computer hardware. So actually, it's kind of thing. Not that I like know much about it. Yeah, no, I, I have an old Commodore in my closet. I've been meaning to hook up, and uh, we've, we've got a Commodore 64 actually in the in my mom's house that we all used when I was younger. Don't don't throw it out. If, oh, no. if it's ever to the point where it's going to get thrown out, I will I will keep it. I have a 128 here. No, we we absolutely I, nobody would. I would be the one. I mean, I still have my Nintendo and Super Nintendo. I definitely would keep that. Um, but even though I, I haven't, it hasn't been fired up, and I came in. It might not even work. You never know. Everybody in our family. I mean, that's that's what I like learned. The limited amount of coding that I kind of learned. There's yeah. no way that we would ever get rid of that because it, it was, you know. A, a connection kind of to my my childhood my first console for sure like first gaming thing ever i remember uh, actually ironically in terms of business i one of my favorite games was lemonade it was oh yeah i remember lemonade. lemonade it was one of my favorite games not surprisingly right you know the nerd who liked playing sim city when he got older of course so lemonade. that's why you've had more success in business you were playing lemonade and i was playing Kickman, where you're a clown <laughs> on a unicycle kicking balloons i never played that one i, I played Jumpman junior do you remember that one i, I don't know if i've played those okay is that the one where like the level like appears as you run i think so yeah okay i think i had a friend who had that okay anyway kick man huh? all right you're a clown on a unicycle and you kick balloons and the music is burned into my brain because it's like a eight second loop and it just, it just loops and going. loops and loops do 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 that imagine that i played it for hours at a time and just that eight seconds just loops and Can loops and loops you this? did you ever think to just turn the volume off down <laughs> no because it's part of the, i'm not gonna cut off half the experience you know i, I wasn't annoyed by it as a kid Obviously. i'm just like fine this is this is what video games are it was 1983 or four or whatever it's like right. that's just the way games were it's true it's all you can hope for is eight seconds of music. Uh, a little more somber note, but also in San Francisco on April 9th, the first confirmed diagnosis of AIDS is made by Dr. Uh, John Gullett. <laughs> that brought the podcast down? Uh, sadly, yes, but it you know is history and yeah. uh, certainly... Uh, no, that's definitely notable. Yeah, and I, actually I remember like one of the first HBO movies I remember is And the Band and Played the Band On. Played on. Yeah, yeah, it's I a remember. really good movie. I remember well. On April 12th, uh, the Space Shuttle Columbia is launched, which was the world's first reusable space shuttle, uh, and obviously changed the, the space program here in the United States and throughout the world. Yep. Uh, also in the world of business, somewhat interesting, at least to me, on April 22nd, the first zero-coupon bonds were issued by the J.C. Penney Company, uh, with a face amount being paid for uh, $332.47, would yield you $1,000 eight years later, which effectively works out to be a 14.25% interest rate. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background in history. Interest rates in general were really, really high back then, and so what this was a way is to not have to pay actual cash interest, but it would build up over time. So somebody buys the bond for less than the face, and effectively they're paying interest without writing you a check because they'll write you the check for the interest basically in eight or nine years. Okay. I, the only part of that I understood was interest rates were high. Yeah. That's, that's all. I, interest I, rates I, were high, so me. this was a way that not having to – because normally, right, when you borrow money, you got to pay somebody every month or every six months. Well, with really high interest rates, this was just a financial engineering trick. To pay still that high interest rate but not have to pay the cash each month, you just basically paid it at the end. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so... You're going to have to explain to me how that works. I, I kind of have a sense of what you mean now, So, but. effectively, I'm lending you $1,000, but for that $1,000, you only have to give me 
$332 today, and I give you $1,000 in eight years. Oh, sure. I understand how a bond works. I'm just not sure how no, it, it, the, the zero coupon, that's how it works, is that instead of you, you, lending, I, you, know, you giving me $1,000 or I lend you $1,000, you get $1,000. I lend you, in theory, $1,000 that you have to pay later, but you only get $332 today. So then you have to pay me 1000 instead of the 332 and so you make the interest payments effectively at the back end. Oh, gotcha. It's the reverse of what I was thinking. I was thinking it is an investment, but no, it's a loan. Yeah, effectively. It's a, it's a bond with an effective interest rate, but the interest rate accrues and is added to the balance over time rather than being paid as you go. So I'm loaning JP, uh, JC Penny money. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's an interesting concept. That doesn't exist anymore, does it? Zero coupon bonds? Yeah, they still do. Absolutely. But like retailers or like banks? Bank. No, but th- this was just an example. It was a company because this was a corporate issue. So it was like two hundred million dollars sold to to the public. Okay. I mean, all I, kinds of different is, companies issue bonds all the time. Okay, yeah, this is interesting to you. I'm curious in general, but let's not spend a lot of time. All right, I've already spent I, too I, much I, time. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> sorry, April, sorry, no worries. April, <laughs> this is why I said I was going to step away. Is I'm just, we're just dragging this out now. <laughs> April twenty third. Uh, I found this interesting. A time capsule in the Empire State Building is open that was uh, placed on September 9th of nineteen thirty. To reveal, water had ruined everything inside the time capsule. Uh, on April 27th, something very important to this podcast happens. Bigfoot is created. And if you remember from an earlier oh, episode, sure. we had, what was the name of that? Bigfoot uh, and the Muscle Machines. Bigfoot and the Muscle Machines, that's right. They're big, bad, dirty, and mean. Uh, <laughs> I edited that podcast, so I listened to that a couple of times. <laughs> Uh, on April 27th, uh, this is actually pretty interesting, too, and something you'll be interested in. The Xerox 8010 goes on sale, which is the first personal computer to include a mouse. Uh, and the history of Xerox is actually a, a great background. And if you really want to learn, Xerox had an unbelievable amount of technology in its Palo Alto kind of research facility. Yeah. And being, you know, the lumbering, huge... We do some one thing really, really well, not having any vision because you're a big, huge company. Sure. Perfect example of a, I mean, the, they had the first uh, GUI interface, you know, graphic interface. They had that and basically sat on it and didn't realize the value. Uh, so they, they had one of the first PCs with a mouse. Obviously, Xerox is not a computer company these days, yeah, so definitely. you kind of know why. Is that in Holden Catch Fire? It is referenced in it, yes, that, okay. that Xerox... Uh, have you, I, I do think, need to watch that show. I, I, I think you would enjoy that show, especially the I'm earlier sure I seasons. Would. Yeah, I'm sure I would. Uh, and then April 30th, Bud Light starts uh, being test marketed in a nationwide launch in this, uh, later, in, actually the next year, in the summer of 1982. And then shortly thereafter, we would have Birth of the Bud Bowl, which is very, very important in TV history. <laughs> that was many years later, I think. It was. Uh, uh, we, we were just talking about gambling earlier today, and you know, it's <laughs> the fact that in junior high school... Uh, myself and a mutual friend of ours would gamble on the Bud Bowl. I still laugh about that. I, I laugh about I it, and that is the, the beginnings of a gambling problem if you're gambling on the Bud Bowl. <laughs> I won't deny it. To finish history, the New York Times bestseller is The Covenant by James Michener. I looked it up. It, had, uh, it was uh, historical. I don't know if it was historical fiction, but it had to do with colonization in South Africa. I no clue. James Mitchell's name has come up in this segment before. Okay. So he's, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with him, but yeah, I think he was a pretty big author. And the Billboard 100 this week is Kiss on My List by Hall & Oates. Don't know it. Oh, that's a good song. I like Hall & Oates. They're clowned on a lot for being corny. Okay. 
But you know what? All in notes, they're good. All right. So that was it. That was uh, April of 1981. That was what was going on when Nighthawks was opening in theaters. Okay. A lot of good stuff. Let's move on to talking about the big picture. You want to talk? We'll talk. I'm a sucker for good conversation. Yeah, so the big picture where we outline what the plot of the movie was. And as we alluded to, this one is a little bit of a rough plot. Yeah, it's, it's very disjointed. And I, I be, I'm sure we're going to have to fill in some gaps that the movie leaves for us to fill. Uh, yes. Uh, so we've got two New York City cops played by Stallone and Billy D. Williams. Yep. Deke De Silva and Matthew Fox, which I could not get Dr. Jack Shepard out of my head yeah. every time I thought about Matthew Fox. It's uh, it's funny for multiple reasons because yeah obviously Matthew Fox, you and I were both big Lost fans when it was on and uh, I know yeah. I was so turned off by the last season and in particular the last episode that I basically just stopped caring about Lost at all. Yeah. So now uh, when I think of Matthew Fox, I think of uh, uh, Bone Tomahawk, which is a movie that I, I don't think you've, you you no, said you haven't seen. I haven't. No. It's a western kind of horror me, movie. Yeah, that it was in- intriguing. Oh, I love it so much. It's it's one of my favorite movies from the last five years. Okay. It might be a little older than that now, but he's in it, and he's great in it. But anyway, yeah, Matthew Fox. I couldn't get past that. <laughs> it's so funny, that name. character name. But the second reason why that's funny is I, Billy D. Williams, and maybe it's just because I know him as Lando, and, you know, obviously that's his most well-known role. And, you know, the Colt 45 commercials, which, you know, yeah. uh, I'll obviously... I don't know if that carried on. I don't know if he was doing it at the time or what, but it's like... They, they were known for he's like this the smooth guy. Yeah. And for him to be playing a guy named Matt... It, it, hey there, I'm Matt. It, it's, and it's not necessarily fair either, I think, to Billy D. Williams. But it, it's You look at him, it's like, he's not a Matt. No, it's, it's like, it, just change the character name, right? I mean, I, it's, fi- it's a fine casting. There's no wrong with the casting. Just give him nothing against the name Matt. I would feel the same way if his name was Kevin. Like, I'm Kevin. Like, no, it's not. He's, he's way too cool to be a Matt. You know, he, it's, a, it's a too... It's too he should have been a Deke. You know? He could have pulled off oh, Deke. Oh, absolutely, he could have. Uh, and so they're, uh, as we said, I, I'm not sure what unit they're in. I think they say they're in the decoy unit and their job is to pose as innocent people and to draw out muggers and thugs and then to arrest them. Right. Cause that's the opening scene. And I, I mean, really that, love that opening scene. That's what they pretty much do in every scene until they get assigned to, I guess, the precursor to Homeland Security. I, I don't really know what it is. Yeah, it's like some kind of multi-department anti-terrorism squad With, that gets put together over the course of this movie. And overseen by Interpol. I mean, none of it. Jurisdictions <laughs> really get thrown out the window in this thing. Yeah, I did love that Interpol guy, but we'll get there in a second. And so, yeah, we do have... An, basically, all of the scenes with Deke and Matt, up until Interpol and Rucker Hauer's character, which we'll get to Wolfgar... Make it to New York feel like a completely different movie. Oh, absolutely, and it's they're just there to establish their characters, but they have two separate scenes that are totally unrelated to each other. First is the scene where Sylvester Stallone and his Mission Impossible mask oh, technology—you you beat me to it, well, the that, Ethan, the Ethan Hunt. It's—I mean, it's—it's it's exactly that. He rips off him. He's he's posing as a gun innocent woman like yes. it's he, it is the exactly, face is kept in shadow yes, but, but it is exactly like ethan hunt it, it's extra funny because stallone has that beard to be yeah, this you know woman and then he tears off his mask and it's just like bearded man here i am and <laughs> that actually was among my favorite parts of the movie was the ethan hunt m- reveal i agree and it's it, it, i don't know if it's intentionally funny or unintentionally funny but it was funny <laughs> that reveal and then 
there's a chase and Stallone tra- chases the guy down on the train platform. And there's a knife fight. And I was laughing through that whole fight because the whole time he's like, come on, badass. What are yeah. you going to do, badass? You're a badass. Come on, badass. <laughs> and the way Stallone is like, it felt like it was intentionally funny. I don't, I'm not sure that was supposed to be. <laughs> I, we, but I, in the moment, I was like, this is pretty funny. But then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure they were going for I that. I think that's what he was going for. Um, and then the final shot of that fight, he, he knocks the guy out. And then he starts dragging him across the train platform. And he's reading him as Miranda writes. And the camera's just kind of locked off, and he's just dragging him through the frame. And it's a total comedy shot. And I'm going, like, is, is this supposed to be funny? Because, like, there are three to four moments in that opening scene made me laugh. But then after I saw the rest of the movie, I went, like, oh, this isn't this intentional. This is not what it's going for. This is not funny intentionally. This is just, this you is know. not Police Academy. No. <laughs> no, but it wasn't. It felt, I know, it felt I know. like, uh, you know how much I like, uh, uh, um, oh, God, the Billy Crystal uh, running scared. You know how much yeah. I like running scared. And it had that kind of a vibe. It's like, it's gritty and it's a cop movie, but there's also a lot of comedy in this. And that's what I was kind of, and after the first scene, I was like, oh my God, if this is anything like running scared, I'm going to love this movie. I seriously was like smiling from ear to ear going like, I'm going to love this movie. And then over the course of the next half hour, the downer, smile kept, downer, yeah, downer, yeah, exactly. Downer, yeah. And then there's another scene where they bust like a, a drug storehouse or whatever. It's just showing them doing their job. It's not like these characters are going to come back. Like the drug dealers in there yeah. are important in any way. It's just like, Here's a scene where they bust a drug house. You know, yeah. a, 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 you and know. then there was another, a third one that ultimately they're interrupted that they don't, you know, complete their mission. And <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> Stallone, the businessman. I loved his decoy there. <laughs> and I am a businessman. He's just walking stiffly through Central Park. Do, do you think, Hello, I am here for business. I have a suit, a briefcase. Here I am. And their overreaction of how angry they are. <laughs> oh, I know. He's out. That was another one that was like borderline. I don't think it, they were trying to be funny, but it was funny. Yeah, it's, uh, that's very over the top. Um, yeah, you, it's like we you blew our bust of these anonymous thugs. It's not like this. This is the kingpin. They've been working a case for a year and they blew it. Right. They don't know who these guys even are. <laughs> you blew our bust. I guess they got to make their numbers. Like any, you know, I'm sure it's like. Well, the, de- the decoy squad has to justify probably all the the budget they have because they got a lot of different costumes that, that That's they're true. using. Well, every every time we see them, the they decoy have a different costume. Yeah, but it, it works every time. Absolutely, seventy percent of the time it works every time. Yes, thank you, Yogi. From there, though, <laughs> that was from Anchorman. <laughs> that was not Yogi Bear. Oh yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. No, I like. Uh, that's a very Yogi-esque line. Though. Yes. Uh, and But from there, as you said, things kind of take a dour turn, basically, as soon as we get introduced to Rutger Hauer's character, Wolf Wolfgar. Wolfgar, yes. He's German, right? And Rutger Hauer's Dutch, but I think he's playing a I, German I, guy. I believe he's, yeah, the character is supposed to be German. And he's like a freelance terrorist? He's like a terrorist for hire. Yeah, so, and I, I think maybe I read this in IMDb. Even if I hadn't, it loosely felt, or it felt like he was loosely based on Carlos the Jackal, that he's kind of a, a terrorist for hire, that he doesn't necessarily have an ideology, but he's willing to, uh, to, to wreak havoc for those that do have an ideology. Okay. I didn't know that was based on that. Yeah. I mean, All I, I know about Carlos the Jackal is I learned from the movie The Jackal, which I remember nothing about. Richard, All I remember is Richard Gere was in it. Yeah, I don't remember anything about the movie. But. No, I don't either. I, and maybe that's one of the criticisms, is that while I think the performance is good, it doesn't make all that much sense why ultimately New York City police officers are the ones that are chasing him. And you just don't the, get that much on... Wolfgar doesn't have an ideology. You, he's just a terrorist. Yeah. That's fine if they would have made that more a central part of his character. Like, you know, 
I mean, Die Hard was later, obviously, but they're, in that movie, they're only posing as terrorists. They're actually you know, thieves. They're thieves. And, and that's basically what's happening they here. Is, to, they did upgrade to kidnapping, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, Wolfgar's whole uh, his motivation is for money, basically. He wants, I, but he's, he's it, doing like... I couldn't even figure that out. It's, I'm not sure what his motivation was. I think he's just trying to pull off a big terrorism, an act of terrorism to prove himself so he can get back in the good graces of his employers, his, you know, or potential employers. I guess. He's basically, like, doing terrorism on spec. He's just speculating that if I blow something up, someone will pay me for it. That's basically, I or think, what's happening. Or they'll hire me for the next job. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, maybe, too, the the issue I had, and we've we've had this conversation, is that kind of... And even though this is a serious topic, and I think probably was a really gritty movie for the time, it just... It always feels like pre nine eleven movies are quaint in a way, and and this I was not trying to be, I'm sure, for the time, but kind of this their presentation of what you know terrorism is. I just I'm not sure I really bought it. Yeah, because there's no real sense of what Wolfgar's plan is, or like what right. what is the goal? I guess the goal is to kill UN delegates. Or something. Is it delegates, or is it just like their traveling secretary? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I didn't think it was even the delegate. I mean, you know, I, we're skipping ahead a towards the end, but. Yeah, it's unclear, regardless of yeah, the who, details. It's unclear. Interpol shows up, the guy from Interpol. Uh, I, I wrote down the guy's name. I forget the actor's name, but I do really like this guy. He's so British. He's like the most. Oh, he he absolutely is. I'm not sure I agree with the training techniques. Well, that's the thing. I was I was gonna say this is whole idea of like, you know, a terrorist is not the same thing as a criminal, and you have to stop thinking like you're trying to bust a criminal. Don't think about mos. Don't think about like you know investigations. Your job is to take him out no matter what. And blah blah blah. And it's like, well, well, take him out. How? Take him out using what? What? Right. Like first, you have to locate him. First, you have to you have, you to, have be to a detective. In, you have to investigate before you even get to that point. So, what is the? There shouldn't be any argument here. It's like you're both right. Yes, you have to take out the. You know, at least in in the the. I'm not saying the like this necessarily applies to the real world. This is a movie world for sure. Yeah. But like in this world, okay, fine. I will accept what the movie is telling me that in order to stop this terrorist, you just have to take him out, just kill him. Right. The ends justify the means. Yeah, and I'll I'll accept that. It's a movie. It's fine. Um, I mean, to, to a degree, I, I'm not going to say I disagree with that in real life, depending on what we're talking about. But, you know, th- there's this, like, argument between the, the this Interpol detective and Stallone's character. And it's like, well, you guys are arguing about two totally different things. Like, you're both right. Just, yeah, okay. Both are necessary to complete the job. Yeah, probably. Stallone's like, we got to go out there and find, you know, and investigate and find out where he is. And it's like, no, no, you have to... You, you know, have to go through this training class, which is really bogging down the movie. <laughs> you have to. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, that's my biggest criticism is it's it, it honestly is when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? I understand. And that maybe is the strongest moment is when Stallone's character, Deke, finally gets he's like, we got to get out on the street. I'm like, yes, I agree with them. This is supposed <laughs> to be some sort of action movie, yeah. even if it's a thriller. I'm like, they're in a classroom. Who wants to watch this? It goes on for 12 minutes. It intercuts with Wolfgar doing things. That's it's it's like, but, I'm interested in the terrorist because he's actually out doing things. Yeah, because uh, there's a couple things that I thought were unintentionally funny. The one, because there's the, the part you're right where uh, Stallone's like, we're sitting in here and we're not going to catch him sitting in here. Isn't that logical? And then the guy's like, you must learn the techniques to take down a terrorist before you can be effective in the first place. 
more logical. He's just like, that's even more logical. Like, checkmate. Yeah. Um, that made me laugh. But I, I don't think it's supposed to. I don't think it was intentional. But the other thing that's funny about that sequence. Okay. So, I mean, to back up a little bit, Wolfgar carries out a, a terrorist act in the UK. In London, yeah. And he, he falls out of favor with his, I, I guess they're supposed to be Northern Ireland, Irish, Irish terrorists who yeah. hired him to do that. Because he killed some kids. And so he's got to go on the run, and he, he's, he well, changes his face. The kids aren't, but he also, the, the police ultimate, Scotland Yard is ultimately led to a Wolfgar, and he kills one of the Northern Ireland, his contact with the Northern Irish Army. Yeah, I don't want to skip over that part because he gets surgery on his face to change his appearance, and all he did was shave Rutger Hauer. It's oh, like it, he looked like Rutger Hauer before, and now he looks like Rutger Hauer afterwards. Taught, I mean, I look. I mean, I you know, I know what the budget was, and you know, prosthetics may or may not have been good enough yeah. to make it passable. But I mean, that's one of my first things, either in little details or questions. Like, you know, I I think I said that. The fact that he killed that plastic surgeon, I'm not going to normally side with a terrorist and say he was justified <laughs> sure. in killing. But if that, if he paid anything for that plastic surgery that was basically shaving and giving him some contact, Yeah, he didn't kill him to cover his tracks. He killed him because of the shoddy work <laughs> right, he did. Right, the poor job that he basically did nothing. I like he's like, I want to look beautiful like Rudker Hauer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that seems like a pretty, uh, you know, uh, it's a pretty arrogant thing for an actor to say in, in a movie. I want you to change my appearance to be beautiful. And then the next scene, he's Rutger Hauer. It's like, wow. Rutger, if I was Rutger Hauer, I'd be like, doesn't this doesn't seem a little arrogant of me to say this? Um, but anyway, yes. The other thing that's funny about the training sequence. Okay, so Rutger Hauer goes to the U.S. He's preparing to carry out another attack. In order to do that, he, he hooks up with a, a woman and because he, he needs a place to stay that's yeah. off the grid or whatever. And <laughs> to hold keep, his giant suitcase of grenades. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Uh and that's not an exaggeration, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie. It is enormous. It's like four feet by three feet yes. by two feet or something. And then he it's has a-, a smaller briefcase that I am not exaggerating was just filled with hand grenades. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Made no sense to me. Look, he's a terrorist. These are the tools of the trade, I guess. Um, but okay, so we we see Rutger Howard do a thing, right? Be like, okay. he, And then you cut to the classroom where, you know, uh, the Interpol uh, agent is training our police. And he's just like, he will, you know, meet a young woman and he will, you know, convince her to let him stay. And then we, we cut back to Rutger Hauer and you see him doing more things. Yeah. And then cut back to the classroom and explain, explain, explain. Rutger Hauer, you know, Wolfgar, is, he must be living a month's worth of life in the, the sequence. And then they keep cutting back to the classroom, giving us the implication that this training went on for a month. The way that sequence is edited, you know what I mean? Like, it's, they're not flashbacks. You cut to Wolfgar and then cut back to the classroom. Then two weeks later, Wolfgar's doing a different thing. Come back to the classroom. I'm, I know that's not what it's supposed to be. It's yeah, supposed I, to be compressing time or I you was know, just whatever. Say, I th- because I know they're, they're very big in the early uh, frames of this movie of establishing dates. Uh, it's like, oh, it's December 31st. Yeah, and, yeah. But then that falls by the wayside around the time that you're talking about with this interspersing. I still got the impression that all of these events took place in less than 30 days. Oh, possibly, but not two days. You know what I mean? No, like, it, no, it definitely was no. And that training sequence feels like it takes up a ton of time in the movie. And I think, in terms of what the actual time, you know, of days in the movie, I think it drags on for the characters as well. So you think that they are actually training for multiple like days and weeks? Oh yeah, I do. 
Okay, that's what it feels. That's what I think, and I don't know why, but that's what I think it is. But I, th- I think they're wearing the, the characters are all wearing the same clothes in the classroom Ooh, every time. You might be right because Billy Dee's wearing that Superman shirt, which I definitely noticed. You may be right on that. That would definitely undermine that it was more than say like two, two or three days. I think it's just really, really bad editing because the editing does make it. Because elsewhere, when we're cutting back to Wolfgar. He is clearly living like oh yeah weeks and weeks. He's are going, going by. to clubs. I mean, he's he's yeah. having a good time. <laughs> I did enjoy 1981 discotheque. Everyone's in like t-shirts and like bright suspenders, like Robin Williams style suspenders, <laughs> like the the fashion of the early 80s. And then pan over to Wolfgar in a full three piece suit, sipping a brandy. <laughs> it's like how is he? <laughs> he's so he stands out so much. It's like what detective do you need to figure out which one is the international terrorist? Yeah, and the idea. That he, this is where he's going to like pick up a girl and be like, yes, I'm good. Like, everyone in there would be like, hey, look at the old man over there. What's this guy doing? <laughs> look at the creep over there. It's not 1958 anymore, buddy. Oh man, you should at least be trying to blend in. Yeah. So with that training, by the way, the the character's name I don't have the actor. The character's name is Hartman, which I of course could yes. not think of anything other than Phil Hartman. Yeah. So you know, you get this training, and the the ultimate where they think that Wolfgar is going to strike is that there's going to be a UN conference in New York. Yeah. And the leap that they make of, I, I have a major problem with this. His conclusion is, Oh, this is the only place he could possibly strike. I just, I know it's for a plot convenience and there's a UN convention. So there is some logic to it, but the fact that they just jumped to this conclusion, he fled London and the only place that he's going to strike is New York and these U- UN delegates seemed like a stretch. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I mean, I guess the idea is that Hartman knows Wolfgar better than anybody because he's been pursuing him for all these years. That nobody so, would listen to him, too. That, that, right. You get a little bit of that in, in England the, from Scotland Yard that they don't want to hear from Hartman, that basically I told you so. Right. Uh, so that may be the case, I, and whatever. You need some plot convenience. But ultimately, where it does lead is exactly where Hartman thinks, and that the UN delegation is uh, is in danger of, of assassination by Wolfgar. Yeah, and then they track down Wolfgar in a very convenient way, right? Because what is it? They somehow learn that he's been visiting these nightclubs. Yeah, so because the, from their training, they they go through what the MO is, and so then uh, Joe Spinell. Uh, what yeah. I think is his last role, actually, uh, Joel Spinell. Isn't it the, in his career? I think so, yeah. Oh, I didn't I think know that. He, that's I think he died young and not too long after this movie. Oh, that's definitely true. I thought he had a few more movies in a few more years. This is this is definitely his last movie with Stallone. Stallone. So maybe that's what I was thinking of. So uh, Joe Spinell is is their kind of captain, and he gives them the assignment. I want, you know, you, you know Matt and Deke, you're going to go start uh, knocking on doors on all the discotheques. To try and find where Wolfgar, you know, may have may have found his lady, and so they there that actually, you know, even though it doesn't feel that felt more like a real cop movie of their interaction with some of the bouncers, yeah, that felt like pretty real. Oh, that investigation, and ultimately, then they just happen to be at the right club, and they say, "No, nah, we think we're going to hang out here." And then Stallone, it feels full on Serpico because just. All you have is you have him saying nothing and this discotheque music in the background and hit that beard and those glasses. He just reminded me of Serpico so much in that scene. I really liked that moment. Like that whole sequence of him seeing Wolfgar and just the music and the, yeah. and Stallone's performance. Like I, that worked for me. I think same here. I think that it, it doesn't feel like a, an, a terrorism movie necessarily, but in terms of a cop movie, that definitely felt like 
it was good. It worked and felt like an actual kind of gritty cop movie. Yeah, I agree. It, it was a little much when he's just like there because they don't know exactly what it looks like because he's theoretically had surgery on his face. So yeah, he has like a sketch. He's like, "What if I did this and made the nose longer and I did it?" And then it's like, "That looks just like that guy." And like, he's standing it? right over there, and I'm like, "Yeah, I agree with you." It's like, eh, "I'm not sure about that, Deke." It didn't seem like he really did anything to the drawing anyway. But, then <laughs> but at also, the same time, the plastic surgeon didn't really do anything to Wolfgar. No, they could have had the Wolfgar picture with the beard, and it would like there he is. He's right there. Yeah. Um, I remember now how they have found that lead because Wolfgar's the lady that Wolfgar has shacked up with finds his suitcase, his giant suitcase full of oh, yeah, grenades, right. and he kills her. And then the homicide, right. find, you know, investigates and finds some connection of Wolfgar, and so they figure, oh, they must have met at a, at a nightclub, and they start no, going, around, no, no, going around all the nightclubs. No, right? that's different. So ultimately, what they then figure out is she she had a map, uh, or maybe that's right because he does. There's a bombing on Wall Street that's totally random. Right. That, that he's just showing his power. <laughs> yeah. Why he, give he just, any clues? He destroys windows. Yeah, exactly. If you're a terror, why would, why would you do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it seems like a, the most careless thing. I mean, I guess, you know, he's trying to send out his resume. It's like, you know, he's just letting people know I'm available. Right. But, but thinking back, you are right, because they find the map of Wall Street with... He really is careless because he, he's used the map and he's circled the exact street yeah. where he's going to attack. He leaves multiple clues in multiple places that he's staying because yes. later there's another one. And that is how they kind of then get assigned. All right, go start hitting the, the nightclubs and maybe figure out where he met her yeah. because he's probably back at the same, you know, maybe he's back at the same place trying to find somewhere else to stay. Yeah, they do f- finally find someone who recognizes the girl and that's why they're looking yeah, around they're, that place and he's there. Yeah. Um, which leads to a kind of a chase through the subway. Yeah. Oh, and we forgot to mention, because there's a subplot of this movie where Stallone's character, uh, I already forgot his name. Uh, Deke De Silva. Yes. Uh, he's just like, I didn't sign up to be, I, I signed up to, to be ki- a cop. I didn't sign up killer. to be an assassin. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and uh, uh, Hartman. Hartman is like, if he's a hostage, you've got to take the shot. It doesn't matter what. And he's like, I, can, I don't think I could do that. And so there's this whole notion like i think the movie's trying to convince us this is what the movie's about is like oh can da silva pull the trigger trigger? and then here in this nightclub they've got wolfgar dead to rights this is terrorist who's wanted and who is the whole task force has been formed to catch him rather than calling for backup rather than just tailing him quietly rather than like doing anything remotely intelligent he's just like wolfgar and then wolfgar (laughs) immediately turns and just shoots a random woman well, trying to shoot the well, silver. Sure. And then th- there's a whole chase through the subway, which is pretty underwhelming as a chase, as far as yeah. chases go. Uh, and then Wolfgar takes a woman hostage, and Stallone's character can't shoot. Yep. It's like, well, no one cares about the woman. And then it's not like it comes up like you couldn't shoot, and that, that, woman, no. that woman in the nightclub died because you couldn't do it. The movie doesn't even really dwell on it or make all. it a thing. No, because then the rest of the movie basically becomes the the Wolfgar versus De Silva is basically the rest of the movie, right? Wolfgar for some reason becomes obsessed yes. with De Silva because oh that man chased me. It's like well, first of all, Billy D. Williams is there too. Why aren't you obsessed with him? Well, it's because he almost killed Matt Fox. Oh, that's he true. Sliced, he does slice he sliced up his him face. pretty good, and he spends one scene in the hospital and then he's back. It's like okay, well, again, another thing that didn't seem it to have much consequence. Yeah. but still, he was there and he chased him, and you know. I don't know why he's singling out to De Silva, other than just Stallone is the star of the movie. Yeah, that's, that, that's unfortunately what it is. Yeah, but, but also in that same scene where okay, De Silva's got his gun and Wolfgar's got a hostage, and Billy D is right there going shoot, shoot him, shoot him, and 
Billy, he, why he's don't got you a gun guess that? In his hand. That's in my notes of the little. D. It's so but infuriating. It's so infuriating, and so it's like, well, movie. If this is what this movie's about, have something happen related to you know. It could have been like, okay, Matt pushes De Silva out of the way and shoots and kills a hostage, and then it's like, oh, maybe this isn't the best thing to do or whatever. Right. Have something develop this idea, explore this notion of okay, if you're in a situation like this, a terrorist has someone hostage. You know, if he gets away, he will kill again. Right. What do you do? And it, Pop quiz, hot shot. Sure. No, as shoot the hostage. I mean, this is very much right. that that idea. And it just poses the question and then does nothing with it. It never explores it. It doesn't give you these scenarios. I mean, he lets him go. He can't shoot. Yeah. And Wolfgar gets away, and he does kill again. And no one's like, I just needed a character. I just needed... Uh, There's not consequences. Someone to be like, you let him go, and this is why this happens, because yeah, you couldn't pull the trigger. Joe Spinell's character, or somebody should have... Yeah. Or Hartman, or anybody. But nobody cares. Nobody cares that the woman in the, the nightclub died, you know. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Moving on to the, the plot, it just bothers me. Like this movie doesn't seem to be about anything. No, because it's pretending like it is. No, and then you ultimately get to what the final showdown is. You know, in the interim, and you know, there's this UN gathering gala, I guess, reception, and Hartman ultimately dies. I'm not sure. He just keeps riding the escalator and doesn't try and react he just yells uh i don't remember what her name was now it begins the sh because it's like shella or something like that yeah because no shaka it might be shaka, shaka it's, it is shaka played by uh oh god what's her name i'm so bad with names but uh that woman is in star trek the motion picture and it's the only other thing i know her from persis kambada okay um i was like oh that's that lady it's the bald lady from star trek the motion picture she plays uh, she plays uh, uh well eventually she becomes v'ger you seen Star Trek The Motion Picture? No. Well, if I, I don't remember it well okay. enough. I, I have a soft spot for that movie, even though it's not good. So ultimately, Hartman's killed, and... No, but he... Sorry. I, uh, he sees her, and he goes, Shaka. And I was like... I was going to be like, shit, but no. It's, he goes, Shaka. That's why I remember her name was sort of an essay. Anyway. And Stallone, somehow, in this, uh, his character, has made a giant leap within, uh, like, 15 minutes of the movie... That all of a sudden he has this like bonding experience with Hartman's character, yeah. Mainly just because the character is going to die, and you know you need Deke to want to re- want revenge. A hundred percent. As soon as they're like, "Oh, you want to give dinner after this?" Yeah, like, oh, who's, buy- who's buying? Oh, I'm like, "This dude is dead." <laughs> this it's guy. the quenchest question of a when. Because it's so unmotivated. It's not like right. I, I, this it's this, not earned in any way. This movie is missing multiple scenes because it's like, where's the scene where the two of them, you know, come the, to you know, find the understanding? It could have been the thing where it's like, well, you you know, he's like, oh, someone died because I couldn't pull the trigger, yeah. and you were right, and I shouldn't have, you know, and I shouldn't have hesitated. And he's like, that's all right, son, and you know, right. some way of them coming closer together. Yeah, it's just like now we're friends, and but <laughs> no, he's dead. Yeah, uh, and then I don't, you know, the the ultimate kind of culmination, this standoff and hostage situation, you know, above above New York on yeah. the cable car, the Staten Island cable car, yeah. over the river. It's it's yeah, it's very static, you know. And and okay, fine. Like if this was more going for like a seventies thriller. You know, th- this could have been the whole movie. This could have been like a dog day afternoon. Yeah, the whole intense. movie is is this hostage situation on this cable car. Yes. Um, I think that would have been great. But as like a twenty minute sequence, and the near the end, not at the end, but near the end of this ostensible action movie, this like cop movie, it's it's so static, and it just brings the whole movie to a halt. Literally, it's just like now everything's happening 
in this cable car suspended yep. over the river. And the stakes are supposed to be high. They don't really feel that high. No, because we don't know any of those people on that cable car. Who are these people? We know. We're told that they're, yeah, secretaries to somebody. So Somehow so. they're connected to people at the UN, but you have no idea. Right. They're high value. But but what kind of a movie has this scene and doesn't introduce us to the people? This is why I'm, this could have been the whole movie because it's like, in that version of the movie, you learn who these people are, and yeah. you get to know them, and it's like a dark the, afternoon or right, like any other. The conversations, whatever, of asking questions. Exactly. Or, or you get the media that has you know, pulled up their profiles, and you look, a whole host of ways that you could. Yeah. We don't know a single person. I think we learn one, the one person's name, and then Wolfgar kills I mean, a lady. In thinking about it, Die Hard's a great example. That's not even really a, a hostage movie. It's under the guise, but it's a robbery. Yeah. Think about how much you learn about a bunch of the hostages there. Sure. And this literally is supposed to be like the big culmination. You absolutely should know something about those. Hostages. I mean, in, in, in Die Hard, one woman is pregnant. I don't remember the name of that character, but it's like at least that's something. It's like okay, right. we don't know much about her, but that's something that's giving us some empathy for that character. Yeah. We want to, we we care that she's going to be okay. She's pregnant, and the one character she has a baby. It's like get rid of this baby. We're getting this baby off. It's like well, that's like the one character I cared about is this baby. It's like I don't want, I don't care, I don't know who any of these people are, but at least I want the baby to be okay. And then they take the baby off. He's like, I don't want this baby on here. Take the baby off safely, and I want Celeste Stallone to come and get the baby. I want him. Yeah. And so they take the baby off, and then it's like, well, now I don't care about any of this because who are these people? I don't know. UN secretaries. Yep. I guess we're supposed to care because there's this animosity between uh, Wolfgar and the police. And it doesn't work very well. And ultimately, that doesn't even wind up. So they, he demands a, a bus. Uh, speaking of speed, he demands a bus to take him uh, to an airplane. Yes. Very original. Shaka doesn't make it from that. Big surprise. There's a, a double cross. Yeah. Because Matt uh, Fox, the sniper, takes and her out. Every, yeah. All the NYPD has apparently also been trained to be snipers, which is interesting. Sure. Uh, but he can take that shot. Why couldn't he take the earlier shot in the subway? I don't know. <laughs> Seems like a crack shot. So then you you then get the culmination that a character, as you alluded to, has not really been in the movie at all. Is the key key fulcrum point in the final showdown and sequence? Yeah, a character we've not mentioned once in this plot summary. No, Lindsay Wagner's character, and um, a Deke's ex-wife, basically. Yeah, and there's a scene at the beginning where he shows up at her work, and just like. I don't even know what that scene's about. He's just like, oh, I want to. I just wanted wants, to see you. Or he wants to get back together. Is basically he's trying to reconcile, and he wants. I think he wants to go on a date, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then there's a scene in the middle of the movie when he, he gets put on the the task force, and he's just like, "Don't meet anybody new, I, just in case." And then at the end of the movie, <laughs> she's walking home. She's walking home, and Rutger Howard's character, who has escaped in this bus miraculously, he drove it into, into the river and never surfaced. And they're like, well, I guess he's dead. But then, like, well, let's, let's go to this. They find his safe house, and they learn that he leaves more evidence that he now he knows <laughs> who Deke's ex-wife is. And it's like, oh, she's in trouble. And then we get the ending of this movie. Uh, here's the thing again trying to predict where this movie is going I'm going like okay I know this, how this movie's going to end it seems pretty clear to me that he's going to take Lindsay Wagner hostage and Stallone's going to have to just shoot he's going to have to he's yeah. going to be put in this position where it's like not only does the guy have the hostage but it's someone you care about yeah. and I'm going like this is very clearly what's going to happen and then it doesn't happen and I'm going <laughs> well okay at least I'm surprised but not in a good way it feels like everything this movie was building to just 
never the rug just totally got pulled out from under me because okay if if that's not going to be the finale of your movie what was the point of all this discussion about shooting you know if, if someone has a hostage whether or not you should shoot I'm going to this. How is this not the ending of the movie? Yes, it, I mean I predicted it, and I would I would have said it was predictable. I would have been here, be like, ah, I want a predictable ending. I'm sure if they'd actually done it, but at least I'm. I feel like it would have been more satisfying than calling back to the Mission Impossible masks from the beginning of the movie, <laughs> where Stallone has dressed himself up as his ex-wife, posing as her to draw out this terrorist Watching who has dishes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and just for some reason, this terrorist who has basically gotten away with killing a UN delegate or something in that cable car. Right, why, the, the biggest question that I've got it is... He's done his job. He's committed right. an act of terror, and now he's decided he wants to revenge against a guy who did not stop him. <laughs> why? It makes no sense. She should have been on the cable car. It should have been that Lindsay Wagner is a it, she works in the UN. Yeah, whatever. And you know, it, it would I'm sure it would have felt you know contrived. Force. Oh, of course she works in the UN, and she, you know it, it it would have been convenient. We would, yeah, but sometimes criti- you have to do that in a movie. Yeah, we would have criticized it, but this this there it, it's somebody that we do an entire plot summary and never mention, and winds up being the focal point. The only thing that I do enjoy is I I. St- I'd like the callback to the to the Mission Impossible mask because it was so ridiculous. It is very ridiculous. The, the climax of this movie is Stallone in a blonde wig, <laughs> so shooting dumb. shooting the bad guy, yeah. and then the movie just ends. Yep. It's like <laughs> you're <I> dead. <laughs> credits. That's it. <laughs> no like epilogue. No what no. happened next. No like radio report saying and so and so was killed and right. blah, blah, blah. Nothing, nothing like that. No, it's yeah. just, this is it. Mission accomplished. And what's so crazy about the ending is. It would be one thing because there's a little bit of the idea of like uh, Deke being like, I'm not going to use your methods, you know, uh, Hartman. I'm going to, you know, I'm a cop and I'm going to use police tactics. I'm going to use the, the skills that I know. Because yeah. that's basically how the movie ends is he uses his skills as from his time at, in the decoy unit. He acts as a decoy. <laughs> he goes and finds yet another costume. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure he, you know, they, they got a whole wardrobe yeah, in, the, in the PD, I bet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if that was the conflict. Of like him proving himself right that you know what no you're wrong that you can't just be violent and you need you need to use police tactics and subterfuge and you need to you know I'm gonna be a cop and I'm not gonna be an assassin then okay fine but that's not what the point is either because there's no scene in this movie where that's driven home in any way no right it's like they do argue about that a little bit but nothing comes of it of that also so you've got like two ideological conversations neither of which pay off. Yeah, I, I, it's disappointing because there are individual scenes there's, that I did enjoy. I, th- I you know, there's com- again, there's components that work, but the the sum of the parts is not. It just doesn't add up. Yeah, I think the the nightclub scene was really tense and interesting. Some parts of the subway sequence were okay. It did go on too long. And it was it was a little two people running through tunnels for two minutes. Yeah. Like, okay, you can cut this down. Um, you know, individual moments. The opening I thought was great. But boy, oh boy, this movie does not hang together in the slightest. No, not at all. All right, you all right move so on? yeah, that's the uh, that's the plot. All right, let's move on to technology. It's already up in the cloud. What cloud? What cloud? So this is the segment where we uh, discuss what technological changes there have been since the movie came out that may have impacted the plot or other aspects of the movie in a material way. 
Uh, this one I felt was going to be the type of movie that should be ripe for for this uh, this kind of discussion. I okay, I don't have as many things as I thought that I would. I sure. forgot to do it, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I have nothing. All right, you have nothing, so I will have to carry us here. I'll do my best. Feel free. Uh, I'll I, chime in where I can. I alluded to a little bit earlier, uh, even though this isn't a technology change, but we'll just call it kind of a change in the world. Uh, let's just be forthright here. NYPD would be playing a support role at the most on this. This would be Homeland Security yeah. and the FBI, 100%. Do you think Interpol is even involved in any way? I guess they have information about this guy. So they, they would be sharing it, they intelligence. They have information. They would be sharing intelligence. But would you have an Interpol officer here? Absolutely not. The yeah. FBI and, and uh, uh, Homeland Security would be 100% in charge of all operations that were going on in U.S. Yeah, and at the time, it would have been the FBI, right? I mean, oh, yeah. a, you know, terrorism is a federal crime. Absolutely. This is not like, no. it's not like that, local, it's not like New York City has local laws about terrorism. No, like, that, that's the reason why, even back then, I think that this was a little bit of a stretch and absurd. Um, I think I assumed, they don't go much into the task force and the details of this task force. I think I just assumed there's probably like FBI in here. that are liaisons and, and involved in the task force. Yeah, they've probably. got Interpol in there. They've got NYPD in there. They've probably got like state police in yeah. that class. You don't learn anybody else in that classroom. We don't, remember, we don't know who any of those guys are. Yeah. Uh, so this unfortunately takes away from what I think is probably some of the best stuff in the movie. But the investigation of going to these nightclub discotheques between facial recognition software and or just video surveillance, there's no way that they're investigating this the same way. And certainly, as you said, he's not going to be yelling out Wolfgar in the middle of this discotheque, but they would be tracking him down with technology. They're, They're not banging on doors the way they were in 1981. I mean, even in 1981, they clearly have Mission Impossible mask technology, so they should have all kinds of spy gadgets. Clearly, they have spy stuff. Like, you, plant you, a tracker on them. You are absolutely right. Shoot them with a homing dart or something. Uh, and the last thing that I I noted on this is that, and maybe this is more of my confusion on what Wolfgar is really trying to accomplish. But kind of my my viewpoint is this this kind of resume building that he's doing to try and get back in the good graces. I don't even think any of this exists today. I think Wolfgar, the character. I don't know if he actually commits any real acts of terrorism. I think he just basically is like a recruiter uh, with like a YouTube channel or something like that that, that basically is promoting terrorism. Because he, he does seem to have some charisma to him. Sure, yeah. That's yeah. what I think Wolfgar w- would be today. YouTube's pretty lax. I don't know if they're that lax. I don't know if you can get away with really being, you know, in, like, encouraging actual acts of terrorism. Okay, maybe now that things have been locked down. But no, I'm pretty sure that, you know... I mean, you're not too far off. I'm not saying that yeah. it's out of their own possibility. Yeah. But I, I think even by, I'm saying even by YouTube's very low standards, I think that maybe wouldn't, okay. wouldn't pass the bar. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that he, I think the character is more likely to have been trying to recruit and kind of promote terrorism with technology than actually going out and and. But to what end, though? Because as you said, he has no ideology. He's not doing it for anything, any reason other than for money. Well, that's what I'm saying. I just think his methods would be different today. He'd be like the terrorism school, essentially? Like, is that the idea? I think, I don't know about school, but no, I I think what he would be doing is, I I think he would be one of the, for whoever he was working for, I think he ultimately would be using technology to recruit rather than actually commit the acts himself. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. All right. So that's that's all I had on technology. All right. Well, 
other than Mission Impossible mass technology, I have no comments about okay. technology. <laughs> Fair let's, enough. Let's move on a little details. That cardboard headstone tipped over. The, this graveyard is obviously phony. Here, I'll, I'll do a live remix of this since I used to do the, the custom okay. like musical ones. I'll, just, I'll, I'll approximate the score from this movie. Here we that go. That cardboard blah, headstone blah, tipped blah, over. Blah, the, this blah, graveyard is blah, obviously blah, phony. Blah. There. <laughs> I'll, I'm keeping up with that tradition there. I, I do think that that is actually a fairly accurate representation. Of the yeah, score. I don't think I'm exaggerating I, much. I don't think that you are. I'm sure you heard an example of this at the beginning of this episode. I don't know what music I'm going to put at the front of this episode. Oh, and you know what's it's, funny is my first bullet on my little details is the score. Mine is also the score. The score in the opening titles, incredibly overblown tone setter, screeching horns, blap, 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 blap. Those are my notes. It is so, it's memorable. I will give it this. It is memorable, but not in a good yeah. way. Keith Emerson, that's his name, from okay. Emerson Lake and Palmer. Uh, all right, so outside <laughs> outside of the score, which we both opened up with, uh, what, what would you like to open with? Well, first things first, this is a thing that I griped about in Assassins, and I'm going to praise this movie for a thing that is normally a pet peeve of mine, the split diopter shot where something is in focus in the foreground and then something is in focus on the other uh, other half of the screen in the background. I do remember that discussion. There's a good split diopter shot in this movie. I think they should be used very, very sparingly and in very, very specific situations, and this movie used it in the right way. It's in the opening scene. Stallone, disguised as a woman, is kind of shuffling down the street, and way in the foreground is like a guy in the shadows, and he's ready to jump her and you know attack. And... The movie uses, I think it's a phone booth or something. He's, or he's like against a wall or something. Yeah. And it uses the edge of the wall as the split. Because what annoys me about split diopter shots is when you can see the line where the focus, yeah. there's like a line down the middle of the screen. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And to do it well, you use some kind of piece of architecture yeah. in the frame, like a wall. To justify it. Yeah, to hide it so you don't notice it. Yeah. Because the, the, the shift in the focus is right on the line of the, of the yeah. wall. Yeah. And so you can't I even know exactly what you're talking you can't about. can't see this. it. Yep. So well done. This movie. It's, it's one of the few times I will say, okay, that's an appropriate use of split diopter. It's rare, but okay, there's one I like. Hey, uh, we need to give credit where credit is due, particularly in this movie that we've been a little down on. So that's that the, more than fair. That's the one thing I will credit this director because the, the direction and the editing of this movie is atrocious <laughs> in both cases. <laughs> All right. So what, what I one of the first things I had noted is that for, that drug bust that you had talked about that really does feel like it pulls you out of the movie because they're they're pretty overbearing both Matt and Deke Matt in particular are pretty overbearing yeah. in kind of that drug bust and seem out of character actually for how they act during the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean like, the guy is really you know egging on yeah, Matt. Yeah, he's trying to give him money and, you know, whatever, basically. Yeah, he's like, how much you want, pig? I, I gave yeah. the last guy this much, or whatever he says. I guess. And he gets, you know, I think he just takes offense of being offered a bribe, is what it comes down to. But I, what I just noted is that, I mean, there is, and I know it could be scenes missing. I mean, there's no explanation. You just get a scene of a rough neighborhood, an alley with garbage everywhere, and Matt and Deke just Walk in and kick in a door. Well, they're I mean, disguised as bums, I think, is the idea. Okay. But <laughs> they're I mean, more, you know, more of their disguise you know, That's skills. fine, but there's no explanation. Who, you know, uh, have oh, they yeah. been staking this place out? You know, uh, how many, I mean, you have no idea. I, mean, I know it was maybe the days before SWAT, and we've talked about, uh, we've watched other movies where it's kind of, I think it might have been Red Heat with Belushi, where it's like, yeah, you just have uniformed cobs going and kicking in. Like, right, yeah. with, with revolvers, and that's yeah, all they have. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can suspend that, that, you know, SWAT's not there. 
but give me a little bit of some some kind of background. They just go and do this drug bust. See, I, at the time of watching this, is this is before the movie turns into terrorism town. But you know, at the, at the time, I was enjoying that because it seemed like this movie was going to be, you know, here are the lives of these two cops. They make very small busts for very like relatively low level criminals. They're just trying to get you know crooks off the street. Basically, is like in a very basic, very kind of meat and potatoes sort of way. And it seemed like it was setting up a movie where, you know, you just see them doing their job and it's just like, they make a bust. We don't know anything about this bust. We don't know the details. It's just like, okay, this is them doing their job. And then we're going to get a couple of scenes of getting to know them and, you know, their personal lives. Oh, we don't learn anything about, uh, Matt's life. We know nothing about him. You know, we don't, don't even learn that much about Stallone's character's life. I mean, just, nope. but I, I thought that was what it was going to be of just like, okay, it was going to be like series of vignettes that are, you know, I mean, I, I knew that Rutger Howard's in this movie and then he was going to end up being the villain, but I, I don't think I even knew he was a terrorist. So like, I, I thought, like, okay, they'll probably just show a series of these and then eventually they'll start to tie together and go, oh, that, that, that drug bust we made is, you know, that connects to this or whatever. I thought it was going to, like, tie in later. And I was fine with that. I actually kind of liked how it was just presenting them as just like, I don't know, they're just doing their job. They're just, it's just a bust. Yeah. doesn't really matter. Right. So I didn't mind it until later you see that it, absolutely no, no bearing on the rest of the movie whatsoever because we've already established who they are the first scene does it very well just like they're they're decoy cops they arrest people who you know they try to draw out muggers and they arrest them okay fine so why do we need the other scene where they're busting drug dealers i don't know all right what else you got uh one thing i learned from this movie i didn't know before uh, in that opening scene, before he starts calling the guy a badass, a badass, we can do badass. The first thing he calls him is He Man. He's like, "Oh, look at you, He Man." I didn't notice that, and I went like, "Wow, a reference to He Man." That's a very specific reference to a cartoon. And then I looked it up, and this predates He Man. The phrase He Man predates the cartoon. Did not know that. I did not know this either. This is just like it felt. I will say this: it felt early to me because I, I, I thought Masters of the Universe was like eighty four, eighty five. Mm-hmm. This predates Masters of the Universe. Yeah. So, I, but I mean, at first I thought like, wow, what a what weird reference to He Man and the Masters of the Universe. It's totally not. It's just it not Prince Adam. That's a thing that people you know once said to describe like a tough guy. Oh, he's a real He Man, and he's using it. You know, he's, he's being sarcastic. Yeah. He's oh, look at this He-Man. Whatever. I forget how he, fra- how he uses it. Yeah. But I learned that. I never knew He-Man is an actual phrase and not reference to cartoons and or Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> I did not know that either, uh, and it's good to learn something new. Yeah. That's for sure. There you go. Uh, so I, I noted that, um, that Hartman must have started the militarization of police in the United States as he says that police are incompetent with weapons they have, they have, and try to use nonviolence. I, one, I'm not sure that was true. No, uh, I'm. I think the Dirty Harry movies are certainly a, a interpretation of that. Hartman might have been wrong there, uh, but also that hesitation is what kills, according to Hartman. I'm not sure about that either. Yeah, I mean, we can get all serious with this topic. I don't know if we should, but you know, I think the notion that you know police are trained to say if you hesitate you'll be dead is probably what causes a lot of violence going the other direction i think that you know uh i mean but at the same time it's not like this i don't feel like this movie is really perpetuating that because it's so muddied the message is so muddied anyway if it had ended with the scene of that i was saying i was expecting so stallone shooting rector howard to save his ex-wife then okay but that's not how it ends it just ends with 
Stallone just murdering Rutger Hauer yes. after briefly fooling him into thinking he was a woman. Yes. So, yeah, I don't know. All right. Uh, all right. So I know there's, there's a lot of really terrible dubbing in this movie. In particular, the, the scene under the bridge that we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. Where they get really mad. And the audio of Billy Dee Williams and Stallone is from the day of the shooting. And the cop they're talking to is a guy in a, in a phone booth somewhere talking into a microphone. <laughs> I swear it drove me crazy. Because every time Stallone and Billy Dee Williams would talk, you could hear like... Yeah. The city in the background. You can sure. hear like the, the buzz and just like, you know, the, yeah, the, kind the of, general uh, background of a city. Yeah, there's just the tone. And then when the the cops are talking, silence in the background. You're like, you can hear it fade out. You can hear the city just go whoop. I couldn't believe it. Just like, okay, try lay, and lay in, yeah, yeah, lay in some background over this guy's dialogue. It I, just sounded terrible. I didn't notice it as much watching it, but now that you bring it up, you are 100% correct. Yeah. I do have a note here in the scene. I like I the line where I forget if it was Stallone or Billy Dewitt Williams telling that guy, "No one likes your crap. Kiss my ass." I don't know why, but that, that just that line made me made me laugh. All right, so that that leads me to no, I got I got that one later. So what I what I did notice, I don't know if you speaking of that um, Wall Street bombing that really I, the motivation certainly doesn't make sense. Did you happen to notice you just have? Uh, Rutger Hauer walking, you know, on a on an abandoned kind of, you know, but nice looking street. Mm-hmm. First, he just he just yells "hit," and then the explosives. Oh, yeah, go off. you're right. I do remember that. Yeah. So what I have is that apparently yelling "hit" sets off explosives <laughs> in this world. And then I like that he gives it's like, it's like Alexa or something. Yeah. He, he programmed it. <laughs> then he just has to yell "hit." Yeah, it's this password. It's a secret phrase. Uh, but then I also like that he he calls the media and gives them permission. Uh, uh, to to print his quote, I'm like, what? Do, right? Do, do they really need your permission to print that quote? I don't. I think. will sue you if you don't Ex- use, exactly. <laughs> quote me properly. Yes, there is no security. Oh, all right, all right. So this is something that says more about Amazon than the movie because I was watching this on. I, I rented it on Amazon. Same, same here. <clears throat> and uh, I, I had the subtitles on just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And when Wolfgar and his lady meet in a confessional near the beginning where she's like, they know what you look like and you have to change your appearance, whatever. Yeah, he has to get out of England. And they're speaking in German. They're very clearly speaking in German. Yep. I know this because I speak German and actually I was able to follow that conversation pretty well. Oh. I, was, I was pretty pleased. I was like, oh, okay. I still remember a decent amount of German. But on Amazon, it subtitles it saying, speaking in Russian. Really? Yeah. Uh, Come on, Amazon. Who did, the, who did your subtitles? It's clearly German. That's pretty weak. Yeah. I feel like German and Russian sound very different. Oh, very different. I mean, I, I don't speak either, but I'm fairly confident I'd be able to pick out both. Yeah, I was, I was kind of shocked by it. I was like, okay, I, I almost wanted to like report it, complain, maybe I get my money back. Uh, this subtitle says it's Russian when it's clearly yeah, German. Give me my three ninety nine back. Yeah. All right, so we kind of talked about this, but I do need to make note of it for uh, soundboard purposes, if nothing else. Hartman and that training sequence, it just takes a lot of time and eats up the movie. And what I'm very concerned or was when I was taking these notes about Hartman is his acceptance of collateral damage. That's true. He is very accepting he, of collateral extremely. damage. Extremely. Yeah. It's called collateral damage. He's, uh, jo- you know, joking aside, the, the soundboard, for this guy to, like, have credibility, I, he, he needs to be a more sympathetic character. Or do you just need him to make his case better? Like I, like I said earlier, I, I don't think he's necessarily, like, I see where he's coming from. 
especially in a movie where it's like yeah. I, you know I don't care if innocent people die in a movie like we're, we're here counting oh, body bodies count. yeah but you know I, even with that with a movie like this with a more somber tone I I'm I guess they're fictional characters especially if we don't know who they are it's like I, you know in a movie world this is a very dirty hairy kind of a thing I guess to say. I've said before, like I like Dirty Harry. I would never want him to be a real cop. Yeah. But in a fictional movie world, I'm willing to go along with it and say, okay, All right. this is a All world right. where he is correct, where this kind of thinking is correct. You know, I don't necessarily have to feel like every movie's point of view has to apply to the real world. So I'd, I'd be willing to go along with it if, if he actually made his case, but he doesn't. He's just like, oh, like I said, it's just like, you know, he just says like, this is what you have to do, basically. Yeah, exactly, and it's more logical. Like that's all he says. It's just it's I'm rubbering your glue is his argument, basically. Does that, no does real... that even does that work? Isn't something logical or illogical? Can it be more yeah. logical? One thing cannot be logical, and then its total converse cannot then be more logical. <laughs> one has to be right, and one has to be wrong. All right, but also actually, yes, it can be because they're, like we talked about earlier, they're talking about different things because Stallone's talking about doing police work and. Uh, uh, Hartman's talking about whether or not you should shoot a guy. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive, so actually, they are both logical. You can argue about which is more logical, but um, yeah, their whole argument makes no sense. Uh, So this is just one uh, getting towards the the end of the movie. Just in the cable car, this was just a moment I loved. Is is as Wolfgar Rutger Hauer? He just says to that woman, "I like your hat." <laughs> I didn't enjoy I, that. I absolutely that's, love that moment. That I mean, felt like an ad lib. It does, and it just that feels like a meme. Just waiting. To, I like your hat. Yeah. The way he delivers it is outstanding. It's like Hannibal Lecter. I love your suit. <laughs> right, that is a good comparison. Yeah, I wonder if Anthony Hopkins stole that love from the suit. <laughs> Rutger Hauer. Speaking of, you know, I was talking about the dubbing. There's another sound thing that. I found very strange is you remember after uh, Wolfgar gets away in the subway after cutting uh, Billy uh, Dooley's yep. yeah, uh, Matthew, Matthew Fox Matthew yeah. Fox come okay, on I forget and uh, Stallone is just screaming going like oh, he drops a lot of F-bombs yeah he does he goes hey, you're effing dead you're effing dead and then the, the, the movie pitch shifts his voice down clearly okay. in post-production because he goes you're dead <laughs> It's so it's weird. Not that noticeable. No, I, I am exaggerating a little bit, but it is. It, it, it's like you're dead. I get you for this, Pat Midler. <laughs> but you could uh, clearly in post, like, well, we want his stream to pitch down, and they just like turned a knob, and his voice went because it's so clearly not right. the thing that he did on the day. He clearly, you know, they they altered his voice. You you are absolutely right. It drove me crazy. It's like who who wouldn't hear that and go. Oh, that, that sounds natural to me. Uh, it's weird. <laughs> All right, so my second to last, still in the cable car. I know that the point is that he just wants to get Stallone to say this as character Deke. But just, I don't know, it's the choice. He says, you know, this. The, tell them the city is on its knees. I find it laughable because you can see in the outside... Traffic on the, you know, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's the George Washington, but nothing is going. Nobody in that city has any idea of what is going on. It is business as usual everywhere, except for in that suspended car and for that police force. For him to say it, it was just laugh. The city is, you know, is like ground to a halt. No, it hasn't. Nobody cares. Yeah. Well, it's on the news. I'm sure people care, but it's like, you know, it's but, but like... the city's not on it. This isn't like Bane, right? That literally is holding a city hostage. Oh, definitely. Okay. This is a very localized yes. you know, tragedy going on. It's, you know, 
The city is not on its knees. The UN might be, but the city of New York, I'm going to guess most of the boroughs could not care less. No. They know for sure where the danger is, and they know that they're safe unless they're on this very particular... And you literally can see outside of the business as usual, even where the danger is. Eh, It's not really going to impact me. Because again... They didn't even close down the bridge. No, it's business as usual. (laughs) You'd think they would have closed it down and have snipers on the bridge. Who knows? Nobody cares. Yeah. They dropped a body into the river. Yes, and nobody cares. Well, but while we're talking about that scene, there is another moment that I laughed, similar to the hat, so I just want, before we move on from that, the other line that I really laughed at, uh, and I wonder if this is another Rutger Hauer ad lib, uh, I assume the hat was. This one may have been scripted, where a woman says, uh, please leave us alone, we've done nothing, and he goes, you must be very proud of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really funny line. Yeah, it should have made it more charming and more, you know, more like Hans Gruber. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because yeah, there, there are moments of it, I mean, w- without a doubt, whether it's ad-libbed or not. And that would have been far more interesting. And I think clearly Rutger Hauer could have pulled it off because yeah. there are moments that he does. And it only really starts to come out at the end in the scene in the cable car because it's like in the well, early scenes, he's so like business-like. He, he is, but the part of the reason is is because most of his scenes, he doesn't have other people around for the most part. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's isolated is the problem. And I look, lone wolf terrorist, fine. I, I guess I understand it. But you're missing, the, as you said, the Hans group. There's a certain charisma to him. Yeah, definitely. All right, so my last one is, is just one of the things I noticed in annoyance. Hopefully you, you noticed it too. Did you notice how many strange close-ups there are in this movie? You've got when, for whatever reason, Stallone wants to be wearing this wire at the end, and he uses it to trick Shaka, which I've got it in my questions. I'm not sure what they were, he was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I don't but, know either. But, but you have a close-up on, like, the tape. Um, why are they doing a close-up on the tape? Or then the other one that I notice is that during the, the museum reception for the UN, there's just a close-up in on, like, the cello being played. I'm like, what are these close-ups about? You know, they're mood setters, I guess. All right. I didn't really. They didn't jump out of me. So, okay. I mean, All right. They, they, I'm sure you're right. They definitely jumped out of me, and I didn't understand the direction director's choices. You know, if the director wants you to look at someone's thumbnail, you got to look at someone's thumbnail. It's like the touche. I, I mean, I did think this movie was very badly directed. But well, that adds to it then. Okay. What else have you got? Let me do two more. All right. What do we got? Uh, first things first. Uh, we learned that De Silva had 52 registered kills in Vietnam. Yeah, that whole kind of plot of uh, we skipped over a little bit of why these you know specific police officers were chosen, yeah. and it was their apparently all their military service record that they're you know that they are willing to kill basically. Yeah, and I guess that is supposed to be the scene where him and Hartman are, they kind of bond, where he's like, I yeah, I chose you because you've shown you can kill, and it's like, that was war, and I'm, I'm a cop now, and I don't do that anymore, or whatever he says. It's not very convincing. But if you had to guess, fifty two seems like a whole lot. And we haven't gotten to Rambo 2 yet, and I know that you have not seen it. We learn how many kills Rambo had in Vietnam in, in Rambo 2. So if you had to guess, do you think this is more or less just based on 52? Ra- Ram- based on Rambo's reputation, I'm going to say that this is less than Rambo in Rambo 2. 52 is a lot. It is. Okay, you're correct. I was surprised. This movie seems so so real, and like I don't know, I don't know if that's actually like the way it would have been in Vietnam. People, some one person at 52. It seems. I, I mean, I can't. I have no perspective to know whether or not that that's realistic. Yeah, me neither. So. But I guess because uh, do you want me to spoil the number Rambo had? It's no, not, I mean, don't spoil that. I mean, it's in the past. It's, it's backstory. No, don't spoil. Okay, it. I won't spoil it. 
I already told you it was more. Well, I know it's more than 52, but, but it could be 100. Who knows? But I guess in a in a Rambo world, that num- a number like 52 makes sense. Yeah. In a world like this, I was like, oh, really? 52? I, like, I, I agree with you. I kind of felt that way, too. That's, I, but you're right. We don't know what historical reality would have been. Yeah, I, I wish I had more historical context, but I, I can't say. Um, so anyway, and then uh, so you're done? Yeah, that's all that I had. I had one more. That we haven't covered in kind of a plot. One more. Yeah, and, and just... There's the moment when De Silva goes up and rescues the baby, and they have him and Wolfgar have a moment, and Wolfgar says to him, "We're not that different, you and I." Oh, for whatever little goodwill this movie had with me was killed right there. Because going, first of all, even in 1981, this is a terrible cliche for a villain in a movie to be like, "You, we're not that different." Um, I mean, it happens in Rares of the Lost Ark, and that that at least works better. I still, it's a cliche even in Rares of the Lost Ark. But at least they build a scene out of it and say, take only a nudge to make you like me. At least they, they talk about it and have a cool conversation about it. Here, it's just the cliche. But also, demonstrably untrue. Wolfgar wants to kill as many people as possible, and De Silva has, is very going clearly out of his way. going out of his way to never kill anybody. What do you mean you and I are the same? It means nothing. So the screenwriter just put it in there because it's like, this is a thing the characters say in movies. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. What does he mean you and I are the same? In no way. I mean, they have zero in common. One has a beard, one doesn't have a beard. He shaved his beard. Wolfgar got rid of his beard. It's the one thing they had in common. They both had a beard, and then Wolfgar shaved it. Now you don't have anything in common at all. He did not shave his beard. That was plastic surgery, but, <laughs> point, right. but point taken. They his, did both have beards to start. His beard has been covered up by putty <laughs> to make him look handsome, to make him look like... Chin putty and a fake nose. Underneath the plastic surgery, his beard is still down there somewhere, yeah. Yes. All right. All right should we move on? Yeah, let's go. All right, let's do it. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. All right, so this is the segment where we pose rhetorical, well, not rhetorical, we pose questions to one another that we had during the movie and do our best to answer them if we can. Yeah, a lot of these came up during plot, so this may be pretty thin. But, yeah, it's uh, going to be pretty thin for me, but I've got a few. What, do you, what would you like to start off with? I just want to understand this joke. Uh-oh. He, <laughs> do you know the one I'm talking about? No, but I'm probably not the best person to explain a joke. Okay, well, please try, because All right. Wolfgar hooks up with this girl, Pam, who he meets in the nightclub, and they, like... They're kind of out and about in the town. There's like it's part of it's in that sequence where they're cutting back and forth to the training. Yeah. And one of the times we cut to Wolfgar, it's just him and this girl Pam. And it's like ABC. This is where television is. And then like, okay, why are we here? Why are we talking about this? You know, I thought like maybe he would try to like bomb a TV station, but nope, that never comes up again. Why are we having this scene? And we learn that she's a she's a stewardess. Yes. Uh, you know, a flight attendant. Uh, I think she calls herself a stewardess. And she says, "I am Pam. Fly me." That's an airline joke. What? <laughs> What's the joke? Uh, is that some? Is that sexual? Is that some kind of double entendre? That's what I think it's supposed to be. I think it's a pretty. I mean, look, it's 1981. It's a pretty sexist joke. I think that is that it's, what it is, though. Are you I, sure? I, I think it's playing to the stereotype that one. I think that it's somewhat of a pun on her name of you know Pan Am, but you know Pam. Oh, and, I didn't even think about and that. Then, but then playing on the stereotype that you know, uh, flight attendants at the time were promiscuous. I, you know, I, I think that that's what it was playing on. I think it's a pretty sexist bad joke. Was that a stereotype? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm not aware of the stereotype. Yeah, the stereotype was kind of that. You know, it was a profession that younger kind of girls that you know were more likely to want a party. I think, you know, stereotypically gravitated towards um, 
right or wrong. Okay. I think that I, was the I interpretation. Mean, right. And you're not saying this is true. You're saying yeah. this was the stereotype. Yeah. I, I never heard this. This is it's interesting. I'm going to have to look this up and yeah. see where this came from. Or... So I, I think that's what that joke is trying to play off of. Okay. I think. It still doesn't really make sense even in that context. Like, fly me? It's like... That's not a term. That's not I, an expression. I, I don't think it's a good double entendre, but I think that's what it's supposed to be. Okay. You're now, probably right. What's even more concerning is you're right. I thought the same thing. It's like, oh, you know, he's, he's you know, trying to gauge the, the best to get the most media coverage. And, you know, he's posing as, you know, this European that doesn't know anything. Right. There's no point. It could have been anywhere. It didn't have to be ABC. It could have been, you know, IBM's. Well, IBM's headquarters went in New York City. P- pick whatever had a corporate headquarters in New York City. Could have yeah. been the same thing. It felt like they just jumped out of a van and it's like, quick, let's steal a shot. Yeah. We're, oh, we're by, that's we're by recognizable, the, right? right. Yeah. Talk about where you're at. I yeah. guess that's probably all they did. All right. So <laughs> they cut. They kept that in the movie, but not like important plot scenes. <laughs> Uh, so I was confused in that first sequence when we're very first introduced to Wolfgar. He's in London. He's walking through a crosswalk, and he, he kind of like bumps into a fairly attractive young woman. And I was totally lost because I didn't know anything about what this movie was about. Mm-hmm. So what my question first is, is was there any point to that? And the reason I ask is because I had this whole thing in my mind. I'm like, oh, he must be some sort of like pickpocket or, you know, that he must have stolen something from her. It literally goes nowhere. And you find out like 10 seconds later, no, he's got a knapsack with a bomb in it. I noticed that too because here's what I think happened in terms of like the filmmaking. Okay. I don't know. In terms of like the character, yeah, like what happened there. I don't, you know, I don't know. But I think the director was like, hey, when you're crossing the street, Kind of bump into these girls and then kind of turn and look at them and kind of it'll be like a little funny moment. And then uh, Rutger Hauer starting crosses the street, realized I'm nowhere near these girls. I got to veer to the right and bump into them. And it's, it looks very artificial. Yes. Why is he like suddenly veering over to the right. side? That's what I thought he was trying to pick their pocket. Right? Yeah, I think he just missed his mark. I think it was supposed to be it's supposed to play as like, oh, it's just he accidentally bumped into them and he wasn't looking where he's going. Gotcha. That's but, probably true. But Rutger Hauer missed his mark or whatever. And, had and they to like, kept it in. Yeah, adjust. Well, they're shooting on the streets of London. Right? It's London, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and so, you know, they probably had like 20 minutes to film that shot. Like, <laughs> jump out and let's film it. We get one take and let's go. You know, yeah, I think, Probably. Uh, I mean, especially because this movie is mostly filmed in New York. Yeah. I'll bet they had a day to shoot everything they needed to shoot in London. That's it. You know, yeah. Who knows? It's probably true. All right. What else you got? Uh, not much. We talked about pretty much all of this stuff. Oh, all right. Well, let me let me hit you with another one then. All right. All right. I want to know is Deke the inspiration for Rocky Four? Because the limited time that you get with Irene, Irene just wants to know why Deke can't change. <laughs> That's true, and he does have a beard. <laughs> so There's is the... Deke the inspiration for Rocky Four? I guess. I, I, mean, I didn't know if you were going to hit the soundboard for me referencing Rocky oh, you're Four. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's buried under a different soundboard. I it's, guess it's, because I, don't mention, I didn't mention the robot. That's true. But no, it, it, it's valid, but I'm, it's, I, I'm not going to find it. All right. That's I, I, I left it off the soundboard, and I still haven't fixed it. Well, it's, a le- it's it, here it, somewhere. I, I, didn't, I actually did not pose this question for that. It is a legitimate question because she, she goes into it. She barely gets any screen time, and she wants to know why he can't just change. I know it's you're somewhat right. of a cliche of... You know, wife, ex-wife, girlfriend yeah. wanting to change, you know, this gruff character. but And he's stoic and doesn't want to change. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I found the button. There you go. Mike references Rocky IV. <laughs> so, is Deke the inspiration for Rocky IV? Yeah, but does Deke change at the end? No. Not really. 
I guess, but she wants to get back together all of a sudden for no reason because I'm sure there are scenes cut. Um, so I guess he changed off screen is my answer. We can presume that he changed off screen, but we just don't get to see it. I think that that's a fair answer. Whereas in the case of Rocky, he changes and he also changes the world around him. Everyone can change. That's everyone can, including the political, you know, bureau. Yeah, absolutely. They stand up and cheer. All right. Uh, I have, I think I have only one more left that we haven't already talked about. So this is related to the ending. My, the question is just, who installed the chain on Lindsay Wagner's front door, and did she receive a w- refund? <laughs> Wolfgar uh, just pulls it out like it's screwed into butter. You're right. I'm not going to be able to answer that one. In terms of the refund, she absolutely sh- Oh, wait. You know what? No, I've got an answer for this. Okay. Right. I think Deke installed that. Oh, because he's luring him in, of course. <laughs> because this, this, is, this is the decoy squad at work. Yes. I should have, yeah, I mean, you you're right. You beat me too at the decoy squad. No, but you're, you, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, of course. He's trying to lure him into the house so that he can shoot him. So, so he has. He could have shot him outside. He's got to shoot him in his ex wife's house. <laughs> he's got to fire gunfire in her house. He could have shot him outside. He could have got him before he even went in. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I'd be that. furious with him if I were her. How inconsistent. Whatever, if she was interested in getting back together with him, after <laughs> that sequence, she's like, no, you're done. You could, she says the same thing. You could have shot him outside. Well, I just thought of a follow up question. I don't know if you want to go yeah, or no, should no, I just no, go? Fuck, give me the follow up. Because we see her. It's definitely her walking into the place. Absolutely. 100%. So she's in there somewhere yeah do you think she's in on it like hey i'm gonna use you as bait and then you go hide upstairs or do you think she walks in and she just discovers him in a wig going like Shh, go upstairs like what's going on why are you wearing this wig go upstairs there's a killer coming after just go no i have a lot to do i gotta put on this wig and start di- washing dishes i gotta get my i gotta get my ethan hunt mask ready <laughs> uh all right so i'm gonna answer it okay I think the real answer is the former, which is she was in on it and knew about it and is somewhere within safety. I prefer the answer of the no. She comes home and is completely surprised. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing washing dishes? And what are you doing in that wig is right. what I'd like to think. But no, I, I think it's the former. That I'll she explain was later. Go upstairs. You might hear some gunshots. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, everything will be fine. <laughs> All right, so she I, never comes back down. The movie just ends. She couldn't have at least come back down and had a moment of just like, whoa, that was crazy. The nope. movie doesn't even want her to have a moment. Nope. Uh, all right, so I want to know, is there a reason that, uh, so that the bus that we're talking about with those cops that, you, that had the, the bad audio, yeah. here's what I want to know. Why does that note telling them they need to get back to headquarters, why does that need to be delivered in person? <laughs> right, like the Pony Express. <laughs> They have radios. This is 1981. <laughs> Thank you. Neither one of them had a radio, or even let's say that they didn't, because yeah, you know yeah. the businessman to maintain you know their cover. Yeah, fine. Yeah. It couldn't wait till the next day. Literally, they. I mean, they had to get back for this training. It could not wait to the end of their shift. I mean, he does say you know uh, uh, the, the the captain says that like the governor was involved, or whatever. I went all the way up to the governor. I guess something something. All right. I'm sorry. They'd have a radio. There's no reason other than to just show those two flipping out and k- kicking that squad car. Right. Also, like, uh, they, they read the letter, and then I think uh, Billy D. Williams like drops the envelope. And then as they're walking away, I'm, I'm pretty sure Zad lived or someone's like, you litter, don't litter. Arrest me. Yep. I agree. I, I, I enjoyed I, that moment. I did, too, and it was definitely ad lib. Here's what I want to know, then, about the squad. Okay, so it's called the ATAC, A-T-A-C squad, right? Well, no, I think ATAC is the helicopter. I think that's a real thing. 
I think ATAC is like the, the helicopter unit in New York. No. Are you sure? Here's why. They have hats and everything. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I think because at the end of the sequence, they're... No, Billy... I'm t- the, Matt is wearing it. I think that this... this the, the training is now... This is the attack squad. I think, I think it's ATAC, and I think that's a thing. I've heard that in movies before. I think, right. I think ATAC is like a New York's like, unit within NYPD. All right. Well, then I'm going to have to take that as a given, because if not, I want to know how they got a helicopter painted and those hats made that fast. That yeah, they no, got this training, and they're up and running with hats and helicopters. Yeah, I don't think this task force is the attack task force, ATAC. Okay. It never, they never say that, and you know, maybe I'm wrong that I'm conflating two things that aren't right, the same thing. Right, that's but fair. That's fair. I think I've definitely heard... Characters in movies, like cops, be like, we need ATAC or, you know, whatever. All right. I think. That's fine. All right. So we covered a little bit about the hand grenades. There's just a briefcase that he has that's just hand grenades. But here's what I want to know, then. That's a follow-up. That giant case of weapons that he has, how did Wolfgar get that to New York? Is he like John Locke in Lost? Did he just check it? Oh, yeah. We don't don't see him travel, do we? No. He's just there. He makes it from London to New York. And maybe a scene is missing that ultimately got cut. I think that's a big leap to assume that he would be able to get all that stuff over to New York. Well, this is his uh, cover. His new identity after having plastic surgery is the grenade salesman. He has it on his business card, and he, he just reports it when he goes through customs. Yes, I'm here in business. I'm a grenade salesman. I'm trying to sell grenades. <laughs> all right. I, yeah, that, that's a very good question. He probably just bought them in the U.S. He all bought right. all that stuff in the U.S. He, that's probably a better explanation. All right, I got two more questions. They're both to do with Shaka. Okay. I want to know, how did Shaka know Hartman was going to be on that escalator Uh, when she guns him down? She was probably just patrolling around until she found him, right? Really? I don't know why they want to kill him regardless. I don't know either because I I thought the whole point was to just take hostages. Right. Which they don't get hostages at that gala. They get them when they're going sightseeing on the the trolley. Is the idea... Yeah, this, this movie. Just, yeah, no, no, nothing connects to anything. But I guess the idea is maybe. I mean, I'm kind of speculating here, but maybe the idea is kill Hartman at the gala. That will cause all the UN delegates and their secretaries to leave all at once. That way, they know when they're going to be on the the cable car uh, to Staten maybe. Island. Yeah, no, that's that's a pretty good connection. I, I figure. Well, let's kill somebody. We may as well be a guy we don't like. Let's you know kill Hartman, and that that way, I guess it'll cause the dominoes to fall. Uh, maybe that's the idea. I, I, I think that makes more sense than her being able to find Hartman because it's it's like she how did whatever. I I don't buy that she knew where he was going to be. It seems really random, but I do think they needed to kill somebody to to get the to clear clear the place out. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're in a museum and you're just if you know someone's in the museum also, and you just wander around, eventually you'll find them. Just like you, she's just wandering around looking for him, probably. All right, so then my last question with Shaka and last question overall has to do with that the, the bus sequence right before the final sequence. Why does Stallone want a recording of Hartman's voice, and why does Shaka care? Does, yeah. does she think he's not dead? He's clearly dead. I kind of misunderstood this the first time. All right, then I, I, you can explain it to me. No, I misunderstood it, as I'm saying. I, I still don't understand it. I misunderstood, and I thought that they had some kind of recording of... I guess I wasn't really paying close enough attention because I thought it was a recording of Wolfgar 
talking about her and being like, ah, she's the oh. whatever, like being dismissive. And she, I thought it was the, the idea to get her like upset at Volfgar. Turn, turn her on him. But know. no, then yeah, I, I, only the second viewing one, like, oh wait, no, that's, that's Hartman talking. Oh, 100% it's Hartman. That's just from the briefing. And he even says in an earlier scene, like, give me a recording. The, he says it so fast, I missed it the first time. He's like, give me a recording the briefing. I want another recording. I want a tape and I'm going to put a tape into me and he give me a button I can push and I go, da, 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 get it, do it now. And it's like, whoa, what happened? What did he, I, it's so fast. That I missed it the first time. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a recording of Hartman being like, here's what, she, here's who she is, and here's why she's dangerous. And she's like, huh? And then they shoot her. Yeah, but I'm like, so is she afraid that the information about her will get out? Well, she's a terrorist. I thought she wants to have attention drawn to herself, and people would know who she is. Yeah. And then, or is the alternative she thinks Hartman's alive and... He's like trying to track. I mean, it made, maybe that's what it is. It maybe made no sense to me. But like, why would he be saying these things right now if he's alive? She's a spoiled brat. Makes no sense. I guess it's just a distraction. But you know, uh, De Silva is so specific. I want this specific lecture that that he gave, and I want it on a tape, and I want to be able to play it with a button. It, it and maybe it's another scene missing that there's an explanation of why that. That information maybe matters. I don't, I don't know. Well, okay. I know you've never seen or you haven't or you haven't seen in a long time Star Trek: The Motion Picture, uh, but maybe it's this is her character in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. She's V'ger and she needs information. You want to provide the information, Kirk Unit? Like this is just her being like she she heard information. She went like, ooh, I want more information. V'ger is basically like Johnny Five from Short Circuit, but the plant side of the planet. Okay, they just want input. Gotcha. You know, so she was she heard input and she oh she got distracted and then she was killed. All right, so uh, that's it. It's time to move on to the Silk Cozer corner. Okay. This is the segment where I go into some deep dive uh, about a piece of trivia that the movie sparked my interest, named in honor of Silk Cozart's character from Eraser. Okay, so since Lindsay Wagner is in this movie, but only barely. Her most famous role was as the Bionic Woman in the 1970s TV show. Okay. Uh, that's really the only reason I know her name. But I've never seen that show, and I've never seen the show Six. that it spun off of. Six Million Dollar Man. Six Million Dollar Man, uh, starring Lee Majors. I've never seen Lee Majors in anything, including that show. I've never, I'm just not familiar with either of those Oh, shows. really? So I, I've seen both. What's funny is what I identify and know Lee Majors more for in the Six Million Dollar Man was that it is in the movie Scrooged with Bill Murray. Uh, there's a Christmas special with uh, Santa Claus. It's Lee Majors, the $6 million man. I, you know, I saw that movie a ton as a kid and then wound up going and watching a few episodes because of that movie. That vaguely rings a bell. I haven't watched Scrooge in forever, but yes, now it's, it's, it's yeah. starting to come back to me. Um, but I was curious about The Bionic Woman. I was just like, what is this show and what was it like? So... I just found it interesting what the show was. I'm just going to, you know, this is from the Wikipedia for uh, the Bionic Woman. So, okay, the character of Jamie Summers, the Bionic Woman, first appears in a two-part episode of The Six Million Dollar Man in 1975 called The Bionic Woman. In the first episode, Steve travels to his own hometown of Ojai, California, to buy a ranch that's for sale. Sounds exciting. (laughs) To visit his mother and stepfather. During his visit, he rekindles his old relationship with Jamie Summers, now one of America's top tennis players, the relationship proposes rapidly to the point where Steve provo- proposes marriage. During an outing, Steve and Jamie take part in skydiving. Jamie's parachute malfunctions, and she plummets to the ground, falling through tree branches, hitting the ground, and suffering traumatic injuries to her head, legs, and right arm. Steve then makes an emotional plea to his boss, Oscar Goldman, to save Jamie's life by implementing bionics, even going so far as to commit Jamie to becoming an operative 
of the Office of Scientific Intelligence. I just thought that was interesting and just be like, she's unconscious, she's gonna die. I'm just gonna volunteer her to be a spy if you save her life. Like, she has no say in the matter. Um, if she's not a family member, you have no power of attorney. <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess he proposed to her. It's but close not enough. Yeah, it's close enough, I guess. Uh, Jamie's body is reconstructed with parts similar to Steve's, but the actual cost of rebuilding her is not revealed. <laughs> That's just a funny line to me. He's, oh. a, he's a $6 million man. She's the undefined price woman. Yeah, see, I think that's the smart play because it's obviously as time goes on, it becomes a joke, right? The $6 million man that it's really not that impressive of a number. Sure, that's true. See, you keep... You can yeah. just get, you know, you can just make up whatever current number makes sense for the bionic. Bionic line. is always impressive, regardless yeah. of, of the time and the exactly. level of inflation. Exactly. Uh, okay. After Jamie recovers from her operation, Steve tries to break his agreement with Oscar that she will serve as an agent for the OSI. She agrees to undertake a mission despite Steve's concerns. During the mission, her bionics malfunction and she experiences severe and crippling headaches. Uh, Dr. Wells determines Jamie's body is rejecting her bionic implants and a massive cerebral clot is causing her headaches and malfunction. Soon after she goes berserk and forces her way out of the hospital, Steve pursues her and catches her and she collapses in his arms. Soon after, Jamie dies on the operating table when her body shuts down. And that's the end of the episode that, that the bionic woman first appeared hmm. on the $6 million man. So I just thought it was interesting that it's just a character that showed up on a show, dies, and then like people really liked this bionic woman. <laughs> she didn't die after all. <laughs> so yes, in the following season, they reveal that she didn't actually die; that she was in a coma. So Class, be, classic, yes, didn't actually die. Of scenario. course, it would be the it would be the equivalent of Knight Rider. Man, people really like this car. Let's just give Car a show, and we'll say no, it really wasn't evil. No, we're gonna have a whole new one with right. Car. Yeah, I don't know. There, there must be a show where like a, a prominent character dies in the pilot episode. That's like part of the premise, and it's like, oh, but people actually liked that character, so let's not well, let's have it not die. Well, it's not in the first episode, but maybe a good, a really good example is I I know that the plan was in Breaking Bad for Jesse Pinkman, oh to, sure, to be killed in the first season, and uh, not only was I think he was, pop- I think what the the writers and you know Vince Gilligan realizes that no, he's a really good actor, and the dynamic between the the two actors, we we can't get rid of this character. That show's completely different without Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, but it's not as if they killed him and then said, "Oops, yeah, we no, were going to bring him back." Yeah, in today, in in the you know in the modern TV era, you couldn't do something like it would be like in Full House if uh, you know t- the whole premise is that Danny Tanner, his wife, died, and he's got <laughs> and, his, and then three you know, two seasons later, it's like I didn't actually die. <laughs> I was just down in Guatemala. That would be the real Fuller House. <laughs> what? Uh, I can't believe that show is still on. By the way. Wow. Fuller House is still going strong on Netflix. People are watching that show. I, I don't understand it either. <laughs> I watched the first out of curiosity. I watched the first episode and well, I'm like, I couldn't. I mean, the, it the was thing just is, a, is that Full House wasn't. A, I mean, it, it was a good show to me. You know, the version of myself at that age. Yeah, but it wasn't a good show. No, it was never a good show. It was never a good show. Well, whatever. Uh, I, I, anyway, just not being familiar with Bionic Woman, I just wanted to look at some episodes and see what they were about like what, what what's a typical bionic woman episode so i looked at some of the plot summaries on wikipedia uh, i just found it interesting how like l- how small the show starts like there were a couple synopsis i'm not gonna read all of them but like there were a couple synopsis in season one where it's like her neighbor loses a dog and she uses her bionic ear to listen for the dog and find the dog again like <laughs> s- 
super low stake stories. <laughs> oh, that is great. She basically could be a character on like Three's Company or, or like the Ropers, basically. It definitely feels like from the synopses I'm reading, it feels like the show started as like a less violent alternative to the $6 million man. But then as time went on, got off the stakes. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, so here's Mirror Image, Season 1, Episode 13. While on holiday, Jamie survives an attempt made in her life. Arriving back at OSI, she discovers that a woman, Lisa Galloway, also played by Wagner, has un- undergone plastic surgery to become her exact double. Galloway has fooled everyone and is stealing top-secret documents. In a showdown between the two, Jamie proves who she is by using her bionics, which feels like a thing that should have happened right away. <laughs> Yes. Can you jump 30 feet in the air? No, then you're clearly not me. You're clearly not the bionic woman. How can we prove this woman is the bionic woman? <laughs> Just jump. I jump 20 feet in the air. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't feel like it. Yep. Uh, so that's made me laugh. All right. And then the other thing that's funny about the bionic woman is that all these crossover events with the $6 million man to the point where, like, Episode one of season two is called The Return of Bigfoot Part Two. There's no part one because part one was on the six million dollar man. <laughs> so that it's is great. It's such a weird thing that they were like It's basically the same cr- show, yeah. It's like the original cinematic universe. Yeah. The television universe of the bionic the bionic the bionic verse. Yeah. Um The Return of Bigfoot Part Two. Steve's life is hanging in the balance, so Jamie was must go and fight the Sasquatch. <laughs> this is just the, how the summary begins. <laughs> The previous episode has nothing to do with the Sasquatch. I kind of want to watch those episodes. Uh, I think that this is like the famous, like, you know, six million dollar man fought a Sasquatch. I think I know this is a famous episode because I've heard of this. I didn't know the bionic woman also fought the Sasquatch. The six million dollar man must not have done well because his life is hanging in the balance. He must have gotten really messed up by the Sasquatch. I was going to say Harry from Harry and the Hendersons got the better of the six million dollar man. She discovers that is that the Sasquatch is being controlled by enemy agents and with the help of Gillian and Shaylin, whoever they are, they overcome the control and help Steve, Jamie, and help Steve, period. Jamie, Steve, and the Sasquatch then undo the damage the enemy aliens have caused to the Earth's crust by creating a time distortion. Where did these aliens come from? Time distortions? What? <laughs> this plot that's, summary assumes a lot of knowledge. On our, like, we have... That, that <laughs> shows... Those shows sound like they really went off the deep end. I want to watch this Bigfoot two-parter between Six Million and Man. I man. do, too. Wow. Aliens and Bigfoot and, like, it's presumably Soviet spies. It kind of implies what's, that. What's funny is it, it, it... That sounds like it has veered so far into the absurd. Mm-hmm. It justifies and makes bionics seem, oh, yeah, no, that's that seems very plausible and 100% realistic because when you just go so far off the yeah. deep end with everything else, it makes the bionics seem like, oh, no, that's, yeah, that's old hat. That it, absolutely makes sense. It's the Fast and the Furious model of just, like, if you just keep getting, making it crazier and crazier, then the only slightly crazy becomes extremely plausible. Yes. So you drove a car across three buildings. It's like, oh, that, that doesn't seem the least bit unusual. Not at all. Compared to a submarine, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Like I, you know, I, I really do hope they go into space in that series. But will, you know, that's, that's a topic for another day. Uh, okay, in this corner, Jamie Summers. This is season two, episode two. Jamie goes undercover as a female wrestler looking for an OSI agent who has gone missing while trying to uncover what is going on. Why is there something going on? This, these plot summaries really just assume you know these Shit episodes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jamie discovers the boss is corrupt and in an alliance with a Russian double agent after being drugged and left to suffocate, Jamie recovers and catches the villains while uncovering a top secret component they have stolen. All this is happening in the world of professional wrestling, apparently. 
okay, there's a couple episodes about fembots, which I guess is where that comes from. Must be. I did not know that. Uh, Kill Oscar part one and then part three, because part two happened on the $6 million <laughs> oh, man. man. Uh, the Bionic Dog, Part 1. Jamie discovers that Rudy has a bionic dog called Max, and he reveals that Max was the first bionic experiment. <laughs> this is just classic, like, there was a bionic dog the whole time. Uh, okay, <laughs> and this is the whole episode's about Max. Max was going, like, they thought Max was going to die the same, same way that she did, and then not that she didn't, whatever, but then it turns out the dog is just afraid of fire. I'm going to summarize these. <laughs> Season 3, Episode 7, Motorcycle Boogie. In an attempt to retrieve a stolen computer tape in East Germany, Jamie unwittingly enlists the help of Evil Knievel, who was touring there. Oh, <laughs> man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it does sound awesome. Escaping bullets and bombs, the pair managed to get to the base and retrieve the tape. So I, this, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. Y- you know he jumps the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> It's things like, look, I I can't say that the truly, you know, great drama of TV today, I can't say that there aren't things that are great and that I love about it, but I do honestly miss, and I don't think you could replicate it today. I don't know how you would. I miss the stuff like that. The absurd, the fact that they were not serialized shows and everything had to, for the most part, I mean, obviously with some of these crossovers, it was a little serialized. Yeah, this this show's probably more than most. More than most at the time, but to have... A guest star. I mean, you know, Gilligan's Island. All the, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> yep. I mean, stuff like I that I, that will never be recaptured. And it's something that I, honestly, I'm I want to go see the episode where e- they found a way to justify evil can not. It's probably loose, but evil can evil be on an episode of a TV show. How great is that? And getting wrapped up in the spy business yes, in East Germany. Is, how great is that? Yeah. And as you said, you know he jumps that wall. Yeah, a 100% chance that Evil Knievel jumps the Berlin Wall in this episode <laughs> of The Bionic Woman. Uh, I wonder, I didn't look, I wonder if these are on Amazon Prime. It seems like the kind of thing that would be, because a lot of these, like Deuce so Hazard, like a lot of these old shows are on Amazon Prime, so I may try to find some of these. I'm telling you, that Bigfoot one, knowing that there's aliens and, and, other th- and the Earth's crust involved, yeah, totally. uh, I'm, I'm interested. All right, let me read one more. I know we're, we're running along, but yeah. I, just, I just enjoyed this one. Uh, Brainwash, episode 8, season 3. While at the hair salon, Jamie overhears Callahan giving away top-secret OSI information. I guess Callahan's another agent. I don't know. <clears throat> Jamie informs Oscar, who fires Callahan despite her protests of innocence. Returning to the salon, Jamie discovers the owner, John, has tapes of secret information and realizes that the shampoo being used releases a chemical that acts as a truth serum. <laughs> Jamie reveals this to Oscar, who... <laughs> Jamie reveals this to Oscar, who reinstates Callahan, and John is arrested. I really like the shampoo truth serum. They were really stretching at that yeah. point. That just feels like a whole writer's room full of men being like, what a girl's like. They like the hair salon. <laughs> She's the bionic woman. She's got to go to a hair salon. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're probably 100% yeah. right, too. All right. That's, I had more, but that's, I think that's enough. That's enough of that. So. Let's move on. That was a good count. one to end on. All right, body count. This movie, we only killed 48 people compared to the last one where we killed 119. Uh, this is the reason why we're here. Um, but uh, just reiterating my note, on a movie like this that is supposed to be serious, I feel bad kind of having this in here. Yeah. It but is, it is what it is. is. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're comparing Arnold Schwarzenegger's average body count to Sylvester Stallone's. This is, I mean, this is just a running thing where, you know, Stallone gets one at the end. Yep. 
And uh, this is this is happening very frequently, well, especially the two in a row, right? That we had with Antonio Banderas as number one. That's right. Uh, certainly has way more than Stallone. And yeah. so, similar to that movie, Antonio Banderas, you know, he is just go on a killing spree. And same here with Bud Crower. Yep. But you know, obviously, that that movie is more of a comic book world. And as you said, this is about yeah. terrorism. So it is a little rough. But anyway, uh, Arnold had an average body count of fourteen point seven six. Stallone now has two hundred and twenty seven on the body count across twenty four movies. With an average of nine point four six per movie, yeah. so yeah, on a serious move like this, uh, we don't have to dwell on the body count. Agreed. But um, yeah, those are the numbers. Yeah, those are the numbers. Moving on to the Wrecking Crew Award. Outstanding achievement. Another how, do, how do you feel about that jingle in this movie about terrorism? Touche. You got <laughs> Cheering on explosions. Touche. You got me there. Uh, this one was tough to, to award. I ultimately decided to go with Stallone and Deke Da Silva, not probably because of why you think. That Ethan Hunt opening is the reason why I decided to give it to, to Deke Da Silva. Sure. Okay. Uh, I was tempted to give it to Rutger Hauer, but you're right. This is too serious a movie. To, yeah, to, that, that's what my problem was. This is yeah. This is supposed to be a fun award, and that's he's playing a murderous terrorist. That, yeah, uh, it's, is obviously in modern day, it's closer to home than probably it did at the time. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it to uh, the Interpol guy. What was his name? Hartman. Hartman. Because I really I just think we didn't talk about him much, and I did enjoy that guy's acting. I, I, we both said. I mean, I think the acting is good across the board. Yep. But he was just a little dialed up and a little campier than the rest of the movie. He was just like, you must pull the trigger. He's just very, like, he was chewing strident. it up. Strident. And yeah, he was overacting just enough that I appreciated it. So just, just for his performance, and is is a very. In this kind of low-key movie, he was bringing a lot of energy and very boisterous. And yeah. so I'm going to give it to him. I think that's a fair award. I, I, I should have considered him, but I went right with. I kind of, I, that's the problem with me sometimes is I default to giving it to Stallone on the movies where I'm kind of you know going on the fence of if there's anybody I really want to give it to. Yeah, and I'm, I have the opposite problem. Is I, I, I'm reluctant to give it to Stallone. Yeah. All right, so now the Rocky rating. All right, let's do it. Hey, hey, what the hell are you doing? You're punching car accident victims. No, 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 you don't understand. He was bad-mouthing my film. So this is a segment where we uh, try to rate the movie based on Rocky opponents from Apollo Creed to uh, Spider-Rico. <laughs> you can tell how enthused we are about this movie. Yeah, no, this one, as I said in the opening, this was one that I was hoping was, was going to you know, kind of be a, a, a excitement. It, it's just not. It, it's a Tommy Gunn to me. Yeah, I was on the fence between Tommy Gunn and Mason Dixon. Did we say we use Rocky Ponens as our scale? Did you say that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. no, I did. Sorry, I stopped listening for a second. No, no worries. All the way down to... And it's not, it's not a Spider-Rico. I mean, there, yeah. there's... there's there's some, you know, kernels of, of, of a, you know, good performances and other aspects that make it watchable, but just not a good movie overall. Yeah. It, it, the movie, the plot just doesn't hold together, so I agree. I, mean, I, I also go to Tommy Gunn. I was on the fence because halfway through, it was I, honestly, as I was watching, the first 10 minutes, I'm going like, oh, this is going to be Apollo Creed. Like, I love, I'm really enjoying this. And then the meeting scene, the training sequence, it's like, okay, this is really ground to a halt. It's like, I, this is probably not going to make it to the top. And then just as the movie went on, it just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. So, yeah. yeah. I agree. I think it... It's worse than mediocre. It's, it's, it's not good. No. Uh, and 
that may be one of those that you know we thought oh you know this might just have been kind of lost in you know before home video now there's a reason why people don't really know this movie but it does have a following it does have fans that some people really enjoy this movie and i guess if you're willing to just kind of i mean look you can pick apart most action thrillers oh yeah you know the villain in dirty harry does things that don't make sense and it's it's but at least the reason why a movie like dirty harry i think works and this movie does not is because thematically dirty harry makes complete sense whether or not you agree with its point of view and as i said you know, i'm i'm willing to go along with it even if i don't you know think in real life the world works like it does in dirty harry but like the, the dirty harry is about Miranda rights and like yeah. you know protecting you know the rights of the accused and Dirty Harry saying f that I'm going to shoot him you know that's that's you could argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but at least it has a point of view and at yep. least you understand what the point of view of the movie is right it's making an you know it's using through film and through art to make an argument right and a presentation about right. perspective but it's also a piece of entertainment it's like yeah. it's not just a screed it's not just trying to oh. make a political point but I'm saying you know what the movie's about. And because of that, if the villain does something, I mean, the villain in that movie is just a monster. He's just a serial killer kidnapping monster. And the villain has to be that because you need to be rooting for Dirty Harry to kill him. You know what I mean? Like, and, and so even though it's not a realistic portrayal of crime in any way, you understand why it's that way. Here, I'd be willing to forgive all of these like things that don't really make sense about the villain's motivation if there was a clear through line about here's what the movie's about, and there just isn't. This movie is so muddied and just doesn't know. Is it a cop movie? Is it an action movie? Is it a thriller? Is it, you know, how realistic is it? Sometimes it's very, and sometimes it's not at all, and yeah. it just can't pick a lane. So I don't know. Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn. That's what it gets. All right. All right, so uh, we're moving on to the next one, and it is your pick. Since yeah. This was, uh, this was what I came up with. Yeah, and we're getting down to it, and, you know, I'm tempted to pull the Rambo ripcord, because... I assumed you were going to at this point. No, I have, I, I've been holding off on it, because I want to save it, but this whole season has just been... And, well, I, here's the thing, I, I've said before, that's my least favorite Rambo, so it's like, I, I think we're screwed there also. <laughs> So I, I, I have been. I'll, I'll reveal my ulterior motive is I would like to do Rambo two and Rocky four back to back because they, they seem of a piece. They seem similar enough. Okay, that's fair. So I mean, you can feel free to pick them after the, after uh, our I'm, next episode. I but, won't. I, I'll leave the Rambo. So. But all that's left right now, <laughs> animated, uh, are yeah the voiceover ones pre Rocky, like very early movies, and uh, uh, what's the third one? There's th- there's three left. Rambo. Oh, and Rambo, right. Yeah. So basically, we have two to choose from. Exactly. So I'm going to leave you to the voiceovers, I'm sorry uh, to say. I, I almost <laughs> picked the zookeeper to just be like, you know what? Let's just lean into the bad movies. Let's just make this a whole season. Let's just, hate, hate let's just to, concentrate the bad into this season. I hate to tell you this. That's probably what I'm going to do. <laughs> okay. But what have you got for me? Yeah, I decided not to do that. And I decided, you know what? I For myself, and, and I think for the listeners... I would like to get something that has the potential to be good in this season. Cause I don't want us to be a whole, just an, I've talked about in the past about how I, why I like doing the Arnold movies. It was a good mix, good movies, bad movies. And you know, but there was enough to celebrate there. And like, yeah. 
I like to have the, the breath, you know. I don't want to. I don't. I, I don't, don't want this be, to be a, a podcast where we make fun of bad movies no, or whatever. No, but on either extreme, either we don't want it to just be a love fest yeah. of you know certain movies or just oh look at how dumb this is. You, you do want the balance, and I agree yeah. with you. We we try even on the ones we don't like. I think we do do our best to try and find some positive, so it's not just constantly dumping on. Stuff. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, so I think of the movies in the pre-Rocky category. I'm going to pick the movie that I had heard of before we started doing this podcast. I mean, I don't think the movie is remembered at all, but it's notable in that it had a lot of actors who would go on to become famous, including Sylvester Stallone, but also many other people. And I'm not sure if you know who's in it other than him. So we're going to watch The Lords of Flatbush. That's what I thought since it was one you said, because I don't know of anybody else in it, but I remember maybe it's from one of the other podcasts that... So every once in a while, we'll tweet back and forth with us uh, that they may have been looking to do the Lords of Flatbush. I know that there are going, some other going famous the distance, actors. Going the Rocky Yeah, going the distance. So I, I think that they're... My recollection is there are some other famous actors that I, that I know that are headliners. In there definitely one. are. I know a couple of people who are in that, yeah. in addition to Stallone. So, I mean... And I think my understanding is that it was well-regarded at the time, but just not a movie that anyone remembers anymore. So, All right, All right. Lords we'll of Flatbush. Say, yeah, I want to... Try to find something that we're going to like. Because this, I mean, otherwise this just stinks. Like, I, I, I like Stallone. <laughs> I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I honestly, I mean, I, I, I genuinely do think he's a talented guy. And I think, I just think he <laughs> made a lot of bad movies. And it's just, it's really revealing itself. Yeah. And I really feel bad that this is, this stretch of the podcast is, is what it is. Well, and for me, it's tough because I, you know, I think Ants is a as I remember, is a pretty decent animated movie, but I, I, don't rem- I don't remember it anymore. So that's like my only even potential option in the next one to try and salvage it a little bit. Or I just, yeah. lean, as you said, lean right in and go with something like the Zookeeper. Yeah, keep in mind, though, that Ants has the Woody Allen minefield we'll have to walk through. Oh, that's right. <laughs> he's, the, he's the lead in that, too. He is the lead in that movie. Oh, God. So, I mean, we can just say we're not going to talk about that. Right. But it's a, that's going to be a thing that we're going to yeah. have to n- n- negotiate when we okay. get there. Okay, all right. Well, but, uh, but we'll worry about that next time. Yeah, yeah. Lords of Flashbush will be next. All so right. tune well. in then. Yeah, so if you we're like... so deflated. Yeah. This is the most deflated we've ever been in a podcast episode. A little bit. Well, if you do... You especially. You're over there just like... Yeah. Because it is. It's, it's wearing on me a little bit. I, I, wanted, I wanted one where it's like a... And maybe this maybe Lords of Flatbush will be one where it's like, oh, wow, that was really refreshing and enjoying. I, I hope so. that's the case. Yeah. Well, if you enjoy the show, please uh, like us on your podcast app of choice. And uh, as noted on Twitter, feel free to uh, uh, certainly follow us at, at I'm sorry, podcasts and inter, interface with us. We certainly do, uh, do our best, or I do I, our, my best, I guess, to, uh, to be responsive to listeners. <laughs> interface with us. It's late. Leave me alone. I know. (laughs) Please interface with us. Mike is not talking anymore. (laughs) Okay. Well, please, if if you know someone who might like the show, interface with them and tell them that the show might be good. (laughs) We'll be back with the Lords of Flatfoot. (laughs) Son of a bitch. (laughs) 